The Lifestylist, episode 141, featuring Tara Mackey. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. All right, health fanatics, I got a new discovery for you. You guys know that I'm always searching for the latest and greatest when it comes to superfoods and supplements and herbs, right? Well, my latest discovery is not disappointing. It's called Athletic Greens, and you can go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke to check it out for yourself. So this is more than just another greens product. There's a lot of those on the market. Some of them are great. This is really a complete whole food supplement. It's got 75 ingredients in it. It's been developed over 10 years by doctors, nutritionists, naturopaths. One scoop is actually having like 11 supplements in one. So if you're someone that doesn't want to take a bunch of pills and things like that, you put a scoop of this in any smoothie, water, whatever. It's got a really great flavor. It's actually delicious. It sort of has this vanilla meets berry kind of flavor, but it's subtle enough that it easily mixes into just about any kind of smoothie or drink you're going to make. So it's super convenient, super potent. And what's rad for you is you get 20 free travel packs valued at 99 bucks with your first purchase. So here's where you go. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke to claim your special offer right now. Stay gold, pony boy, stay gold. If you recognize that quote, you're over 40. And that's okay, because guess what? I've got a product for you that's gonna help give you energy. It's called Organifi Gold. And Organifi Gold is used to soothe and recover. So this is something you can take any time of the day, but I really like it at night, like in a warm elixir. You can make kind of a golden latte with coconut oil or ghee or whatever your fat of choice is. Now, the core ingredient of Organifi Gold is turmeric which is an anti-inflammatory spice. And it's one of my favorite substances on earth. There's over 8,000 published studies and articles showing its numerous health benefits. So they combine turmeric with coconut milk, cinnamon, ginger, lemon balm, and two super mushrooms to make this really relaxing, warm beverage. So it reduces stress and it actually really helps you sleep. It just calms you down at night. So the Organifi Gold is truly gold. It's a home run. It's awesome. And I love it. And I take it, I don't want to, I can't lie. I can't say I take it every day because some nights I forget. I'm better at doing my drinks in the morning, but uh, when I do take it, I'm a happy man. So if you want to check out Organifi Gold or any of their other outstanding products, it's super easy. Here's the website, Organifi.com forward slash Luke. And Organifi is spelled with an I at the end. That's Organifi.com forward slash Luke. So that's good news, right? Oh, it gets even better. You know why? Because I've got a discount code for you. The discount code is Lifestylist, and that saves you 20%. It's a fat discount, yo. So go to Organifi.com, enter the code Lifestylist, and save 20%. What's happening, beautiful people? You brave, courageous souls trudging the earth plane with me on the Lifestylist podcast. I'm Luke Story bringing you another one. Here's what's up. Today's guest is Tara Mackey, and this is a true hero's journey that you don't want to miss. 
Tara has been to the dark side, folks. She has been to the shadow side of the moon and come back to tell the story. So you're definitely going to want to stick with this one. But before we jump into that, and uh, before I have the opportunity to break down the episode a little bit, I, of course, need to do some housekeeping. First up is next week's episode, number 142, featuring one of my all-time favorite spiritual teachers, Byron Katie, creator of The Work. I've been following her for a long time, and it was truly a dream come true to get her on the show for an interview. So make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss that or any fantastic interview to follow. Next up, events. You can always go to lukestory.com forward slash events and register yourself for any of my upcoming talks or shindigs. First one's on June 6th at Next Health in Century City at 7 p.m. Then we've got June 14th at Bulletproof Labs in Santa Monica. Those are both free, but you need to RSVP through lukestory.com forward slash events. Okay, on to today's show. So Tara Mackey, wow, what a story, dude. She was not a deranged drug addict like me in her past or former life, but she did suffer some severe pain. Uh, She overcame her dependence on 14 prescription drugs through an organic lifestyle, which ultimately saved her life. Really incredible story. Now Tara is the founder and CEO of The Organic Life, a successful, holistic, and sustainable living platform. She also wrote a couple books. One of them just came out. We're going to talk about it in this episode. And it's absolutely fantastic. So here's what we cover in a bulleted form. Why addiction is a family disease affecting everyone, not just the addict. Codependency and how to identify it. Then how pain and trauma are often misdiagnosed as mental illness. The overmedication of our children. Negative drug interactions that put Tara in the hospital on a monthly basis for years. And then how she finally got herself off of a grip of prescription drugs. Controlling what you can control and letting the universe take care of everything else. And why we keep repeating the same negative patterns until some pain forces us to make a change. The difference between superficial outward honesty versus being honest with oneself. Controlling your relationships with other people and creating healthy support systems and connections. Then we talk about the wild method, the subject of her latest book, Willingness, Intuition, Love, and Discipline, some of my favorite principles. And Tara goes into great detail about how to apply those to your life. And then finally, how to use your story, no matter how sad it might be, to make the world a better place. So this is a really inspiring episode and one that's really close to my heart. Tara was super fun and we had a great talk. This is a really deep dive, you guys. You requested realness. You wanted the authenticity. You want to go deep. Well, you've got it here with Miss Tara Mackey. Welcome to the Lifestylist Podcast, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. Like, I'm so excited to be here. I am too. We finally got it done. I know, we did it. So, or we're about to get it done. So <laughs> those of you listening uh, that are unaware of Tara, she's like a media phenomenon and has healed herself of all sorts of issues and has quite the hero, hero's journey. So uh, we're going to be talking about that. But it's also one of those ones that we could have done Skype because yeah. you live in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I want you on the show. You said, yeah, I'd love to do it. That's great. Like, I'm really good on Skype. I have a great mic. And I'm like, nah, we got got to get you up to LA. Or, you know, perhaps that someday I would have made it down to San Diego. But I was like, she's got to have other stuff to do in LA. She's got to be up here here and there. You got, you know, books coming out the yin yang. So I'm really glad that we're able to do it in person. Me too. This is my first in-person podcast ever, actually. No way. So Good job. I know. Yeah, I listened to you on the Sean 
Coxton show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, the sound quality was actually really good. Yeah. So I was, I assumed that you guys were together. Skype. And you had pretty good rapport too. So you do have a good mic because the yeah. sound is good on your end. I know. I have a very, I use the same mic for recording as I do for a podcast. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. awesome. Well, here we are. So I've been studying up on you a bit here and you have a fascinating story and it's one that has a lot of peaks and valleys. And I think that that's something that's really interesting to me when I'm, you know, thinking about interviewing someone. I tend to gravitate toward people that have had <laughs> times in their life of of abject suffering, and mm. it seems like you have. Mm. So I, you know, oftentimes I skip someone's story because I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They talk about that on every show. I just start from like, what's up today? Yeah. But because I think yours is meaningful and how you've come out the other side of it and turned your life into one of service and having a really positive impact on people. I think it's important to share your story, at least to some degree. And also because I personally relate to it in many ways. Yeah. So I'm going to tell my version of your story. Yay! I'm gonna, I'm I don't gonna, have to tell it. <laughs> I'm going to get you into it. But one thing I think is really trippy is that you were essentially born a crack baby. Mm. 80s so crack baby. Let's start there because I remember yeah. crack babies because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm older than you, you know. So I remember when crack came out and it was on the news and that was before I ever just became a crackhead myself. Mm-hmm. But um, it was on the news and there was this thing about crack babies, like mothers who used and drank and all that and then had babies. So what was your pre-birth life like? So my biological father was my mother's drug dealer. And um, my mother, the entire time she was pregnant with me, was drinking, was smoking cigarettes, was doing cocaine. She did cocaine on the way to the hospital in labor with me. So she showed up to the hospital and just said, I just did coke in the cab. And so they just knocked her out, did a C-section, took me out and then sent me to NICU, um, which is basically newborn rehab. And then she didn't really wake up or get to see me or leave the room for like a few weeks because she had to go through detox herself before they would let her, you know, get up and go see her child. Wow. What year was that? 1986. 86. Not to date myself, but I literally just dated myself. (laughs) You're young. I was like, it's funny when I I interview people that are considerably younger than me and I'll find out like when they're born, I'm like, oh, in 1986, I was like going to see punk rock shows, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. you know, partying like a maniac. I'm like, well, people were being born then while I was out <laughs> doing my thing, you know? You're probably partying with my mom. <laughs> yeah, right? I know, totally, totally. I bet we hung out at some of the same clubs. Yeah. Um, so, so interesting. So you're born and you have to go detox and your mom has to go detox. So already right out of the chute, literally there's trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's actually before you came out of the shoot, yeah, there's trauma. There's trauma. And he was beating her and she was locked in a room by herself and just basically fed drugs. And, you know, that lifestyle after I was born continued. Yeah, I understand yeah. that. I grew up around a lot of adults that were using a lot. You know? They don't think about the children they're using around. Like they don't think about anything they're doing yeah. really, but it's so interesting how they like, I even just try to remind even my friends who don't have problems, whatever, but have three or four year olds, just your kids are little sponges. They're gonna, you know, everything you do is impacting them. Even if you think they're not going to remember, even if you think they're infants, even if you think it's in, it's in womb, you know what I mean? Like every single thing you do is impacting them some somehow. So as you're coming out of your little baby detox unit, which is so sad, man. It's like, oh my God. I mean, I know where you are in your life now and and same same for me. Like yeah. we can laugh about these tragedies because, you know, we're going to get into this, but I'm, it seems I get the feeling you've turned some of those tragedies into your greatest gifts and where your, you know, power really lies is having 
suffered and turn that into compassion, you know, oh, which definitely. we're going to get into. So you come out of your little infant detox unit, you, you, you go home with your mom and she's still caught up in that life. Yep. And, and that's having an impact on you. When did that start to show up in your behavior? When did you start to have problems in school or emotionally? Like when did you go off the rails yourself? So the first time I really remember having any problems, which I was a really relatively good kid. That's why when we talk about the medication I ended up getting put on, like that was actually very strange because I've always been a straight A student. I taught myself to read when I was like three or four. Like I've always been very interested in learning. And I read Tony Robbins books for the first time when I was seven. Like I've just... Damn, dude. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I've just always I was listening been... to Cheech and Chong records when I was seven. Like, <laughs> wow. Okay. I could have used a healthy balance of both. Right, right. It might have been a little too serious for seven-year-olds. But it definitely gave me like amazing coping mechanisms. But I remember my grandparents telling me later on, you know, used to throw tantrums in the driveway when you were five. I want my mom. I want like... It was just that that separation, you know, I didn't have that early bonding with her. And I feel like I was always looking for that when your parents are distracted by drugs and alcohol, you're always looking for that because you're constantly asking yourself, why do they love drugs and alcohol more than me? Because that's what it looks like and presents as when you're yeah. a parent and you're using. Um, and I'm an only child too. So I didn't have any siblings there or really any reference from anyone to go, this is not normal. This is not how your parents are supposed to treat you. My biological father was completely absent, which I, I was a good thing, no doubt, because he was the provider of all of the drugs and the chaos in the beginning at least. So, And they were 10 years apart. My biological father was 19 and my mother was 29. So, oh, interesting. I was, I would expect that to be the other way around. Yeah. Trippy. <laughs> it often is. Yeah. That's trippy. Okay. A little trippy. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, he lied to her about how old he was. So she, for a long right. time, thought he was, you know, until she's about seven months I've pregnant. I've yet to meet an honest drug dealer. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think she was the only one who thought he was older. <laughs> right. Um, I'm pretty sure they met in a bar, right? So she's like, how was I supposed to know he wasn't yeah. at least 21? <clears throat> but I think I, I really, it didn't present as um, bad behavior. I think it presented more as social awkwardness and introspection and even like kind of depression as a kid of just like, why is my life so different from everyone else's? Because mm -hmm. I went to a very small school and everyone else's family was very nuclear. Where was this? Um, in Fall Park on Long Island in New York, oh, okay. where I okay. grew up. Yeah. So um, it's a very small town. I went to a very small Catholic school. I went to school with 10 other kids and they all had parents who were together and nobody was even divorced. And it was just like one of these things of like, I'm different. I'm different than everybody I know exists, which I feel like is something that a lot of people grow up feeling, you know? And then at what point did your grandparents intervene and take over the role of mom and dad? So when I was six, my mom actually, she got into heroin when I was five. Another boyfriend introduced her to heroin. And before this, she was actually a pretty functioning drug addict and alcoholic in that she worked three or four jobs that she would take me to. And I very rarely had a babysitter because she was very paranoid about other people having me. So she would just take me to work with her, which I think is where I really got my work ethic. And then she got into heroin when I was five and it was really bad when I was six. And she, um, she overdosed in front of me and she survived. But I ended up calling my grandparents that night when I couldn't wake her up. And my grandfather rushed over. When she was in the middle of an overdose? When she was in the middle of an overdose, yeah. Oh my God. Did yeah. she use in front of you? She did, yeah. Wow. I mean, she tried to hide it, but in a one bedroom, one bathroom right. apartment, there's kind of no hiding it. It was in yeah. the Monopoly box under the bed. So when she overdoses, is this like a Pulp Fiction situation? 
It was like a, her eyes are rolled in the back of her head. I can't wake her up. Like oh she, I couldn't, I felt, remember feeling her chest and she wasn't like, I couldn't feel her breathing up and down. Like it was, I mean, I was six, but I knew something was really wrong. And so I called my grandparents immediately because I was always, I was taught, actually they taught me to not call 911 because if you call 911 and the cops come, they'll immediately take the child to social services. Right. And then right. they have almost no chance of getting you. So I oh, called wow. them first and they came first. And then my grandfather took me and hid me in the car. Oh and ambulances came and I watched I'm ambulances in police. I'm seeing a movie right now. <laughs> I don't know if someone's talked to you about that already after a couple books under your belt. But yeah, a few people yeah. have mentioned it. But it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's very weird to me to remember it so vividly as such a young child. Like, I think that's why... I'm so interested in healing people and healing children and healing people who have children and healing because it's like, it affects everything. Like if that didn't oh, happen to me, I'd be a completely different person. And, yeah. you know. It's crazy because I'm, as you know, we discussed before, mm -hmm. uh, the way that I dealt with childhood trauma was just like, I watched the grownups doing drugs to deal with their shit. And I thought, mm, that looks good. And I went that route. Um, I tried to smoke my first cigarette at five. I mean, don't uh, get me wrong. Like <laughs> okay, okay. you see the things and you're like, I'm oh, this is like, what I'm oh, supposed oh, to I be did, doing. I just became a valedictorian, <laughs> you know, young entrepreneur <laughs> listening to Tony Robbins. But I didn't smoke my first cigarette at five, but right, I tried to, you know, because right. you see your parents doing it and you don't, I don't even know if there were any anti-smoking commercials on TV at that point. Right. So I just was like, oh, this looks fun. And I could have lit the whole house on. Like I, I could have started smoking at five. I could have, like, there's so many things that can happen when children are unsupervised because parents are doing drugs that it gets scary. You know, that's, you know Very about much, it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's fascinating to me how addiction affects the other people involved. You it's know, a family it be, disease. Yeah, it's just, it's it's insane. Like I used to love watching that show Intervention. God, and I was, it's such a and sick I was, show. But... And I was sober, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I'd sit there and go, oh my, and it was just like floods of gratitude because I'm like, yeah. holy shit, I can't believe I escaped that. But what was really interesting about it is to see you have like, you know, say a family of four people and one of those people is really sick with the disease or whatever the hell it is of addiction. You know, right. there's debates of whether or not it's a disease. I I'm personally one that has had whatever the thing is. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the hell it is, but it sucks. <laughs> yeah. But what's it's genetic at least. Right. What's <laughs> yeah. crazy about it is it, it's one of the only, you know, um, diseases or whatever it is that just destroys the whole family. The whole family implodes. It's like if one person in a family of four has cancer, everyone's sad. It's a bummer. Everyone rallies together, hopefully, you know, if they're healthy yep. and support that person and they'll do anything to get them well. And that person wants to get well and they mm -hmm. probably welcome the help that they're getting. But with alcoholism and drug addiction, it's just like a nuclear bomb in the middle of a family. Yeah. And then everyone, you know, gets neurotic. It's like they catch neuroses oh, totally. from the addict. Totally. And there's so much trauma around that. Then all of them become like Al-Anons and all screwed up usually just from yeah. dealing with that person. It's such a weird human phenomenon to me. Totally. You know? I mean, even the fact that my grandparents ended up basically having to raise a brand new child because my mom was an addict and how that affected their lives and everyone's life after that was like, you know, that's a huge impact in and of itself. Never mind exactly what you're saying. Like when when somebody can't has an addiction and and seemingly can't control what the next move is and everyone's always on edge of like 
this person just overdosed in front of me. This person went to rehab 72 times and still it hasn't made a single dent, you know, and you know, they teach yeah. you basically the same thing in every rehab. I mean, yeah, some totally. are nicer than others, but if they're not working, they you teach get you, so discouraged. They teach you, go to meetings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go to meetings, find a sponsor, don't yeah. drink. Yeah. Uh, go to more meetings, find a sponsor, don't drink. Yeah. Go to more meetings, find a sponsor, yeah. don't drink. The it's formula, the same thing. The formula yeah. that works is repeated, you know, because yeah. it works. Yeah, yeah totally. So did, did you or your grandparents become, you know, neurotic and codependent and like everyone's trying to rescue your mom and like get that addict. And like, I think of one level of codependency is like where you're addicted to fixing someone or helping someone. Did other, you or other members of your family get addicted to saving your mom and giving her money and pulling her out of scrapes and get in that whole sickness? Totally, 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 totally. I would say if anybody is out of that at any point. It's it's me like right now. But when I was younger, I mean, that's all I knew and that's all I saw my family do and my grandfather, especially dad, like he literally, I mean, would do anything for her. And also when you're either a sibling or that person's child and you watch like, wait, I'm a good person and no one's doing anything for me. And like every time they screw up, they're running to save that person, you know? And you see it in every family with the addict. Like everyone just their lives revolve around it and people who are doing well kind of get lost to the wayside, you know? <laughs> so here you are like getting the straight A's in school, like, hello, yeah. like, how about some attention over here? Just some validation bit. over here. Yeah, that's <laughs> interesting. Little. That's interesting. I yeah. think that happens too when you have siblings and one of them's, you know, the black sheep screw up drug addict and then the one over here that just doesn't have those issues. Like they end up having trauma just from all the attention and the love and the focus albeit misdirected and ineffective oftentimes, goes to the other kid. Yeah, and there's know? resentment. Of course, that's going to yeah. create resentment in the family, yeah. no matter if it's siblings or parents or or even between two parents. I know my grandparents fought over my mom. I can't even tell you how many thousands of times because whatever the reason was, the millions of reasons. Like, I mean, there's just so much to be upset about when you're in that situation and there's so little you can control. And i that's the first feeling I really ever remember having as a kid is like, I can't fucking control anything. What am I going to... Like, this is life. It's just this thing I can't control that I have absolutely no control over what somebody does or what the next action is or what happens when somebody drinks a beer. Like, that's crazy. So how has that lack of control as a kid manifested in your adult life in control issues yourself or has it? I would say it's, it's taken a little bit of a balance of me, you know, feeling that way for so long. And then when I finally, you know, took my life back, took my control back, took everything back that I really needed to become a better person and, and survive these kinds of situations and grow out of them, it took a while. I definitely swung the pendulum in the other direction for for a hot few five or 10 years of like, I need to control everything and everyone and everything around me. And of course, you know, I'm already like, I need to get straight A's and I'm a Virgo. So everything needs to be perfect. And like, it's just, it's definitely a balance now of I know I have the tools to control what I can control, but a lot of it I need to just let go and let the universe take care of. And that was the thing nobody really ever told me as a kid or even therapists don't tell you like some of it's just out of your control and that's okay sometimes when you've put yourself in situations where even if everything is out of your control, you're still fine and you're safe and protected. Do you think you had any 
brain damage or anything like that as a result of your mom using? Because you seem very, what are you, 31, you said? I'm 31. You seem very intelligent, articulate. You're an amazing businesswoman now. I mean, you have your shit together from the outside. (laughs) I don't know you that well. I'm getting there. But like I look at you like you're a highly functioning person. I mean, do you feel that you were at a disadvantage at all? Or do you think you escaped, you know, scot-free, so to speak, physiologically from that issue? I think physiologically, you know, I've never been able to be over 110 pounds. There's things that I feel oh, like, like my metabolism is very quick, you know, Coke baby. Oh, and there's just, wow. there's things that I feel like it has definitely affected. But as my, I mean, my grandma tells me every day that I'm a miracle. She's like, we all thought you were going to be, right. you know, who knows, fetal alcohol syndrome. There's just so much that can happen, right. you know. Was your mom out of the picture and not able to breastfeed you? So that's really funny. I was just talking to somebody about this um, the other day. I asked my mom if she ever breastfed me a few years ago. And she's like, oh, no. <laughs> like, what? What did she I do? I just found that out too. With all the, you, you never got breast, breast no, either? No. And yeah. I was, I mean, my uh, my functional medicine doctor at Parsley Health was, we were doing a bunch of labs and they're like, you know, you have to, you know, your blood type and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're like, were you breastfed? And I was like, oh, I'm sure I was. And they're like, but no, no, really, no, were you? Were you? <laughs> you need to check. And I was like, dude, my mom is like a hippie in Berkeley in the 60s. I was born in 1970. Of course. And they go, yeah. well, just ask just so we know because it, you know, it affects your brain and hormones and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I asked, I texted my mom. I was like, I'm sure you did, mom, but was I breastfed? And she was like, nope. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> like, what did you do then? It, it, was, it was weird. Yeah. And she just, she's like, yeah, it just kind of weirded me out. Mm. And I'm sure she maybe mentioned that to her doctor. And I imagine they were like, oh, we have this stuff called soy formula. That's awesome. And yeah. I think in that era, it wasn't, you know, it was kind of cutting edge to probably not breastfeed or I something. I should have you know? known because every baby picture of me, I have a bottle. So, right, you right. know. It's just such a, if anyone's listening to this and you're a mommy or even a daddy, you know, and you have some influence over the mommy, um, breastfeeding is so important. It's you know, so it's, important for bonding. I, I've and always thought about hormones. like, yeah, and your mom's like, you came out of her and then they ship, they separate you guys. You're not like getting For that weeks. skin to skin, skin to skin contact. You're not it. breastfeeding. Mm-mm. So gnarly. Yeah. Uh, but if anyone's listening, man, really do your research because there's so many um, probiotics and all of these mm. fats and just the bonding. And it's yeah. so important. It's what mammals do. You I know? know. It's so it's, weird to think I didn't have that. I definitely... And then I, I felt also... like really sad when I, I found that out, honestly. And my <laughs> other thought, because I know it has a lot to do with the fats, have to do with the formation of your little early brain. I know. You know? My and... poor little brain. Not only that, but I grew up on what? Like Cheerios and right. like Sour Patch Kids? Like what? And McDonald's? Totally. Like what was I eating? Then what was I eating for the next 20 years? Like, how did I even, how are any of us functioning? My (laughs) thought was like, I think I'm a fairly intelligent person. I mean, I'm smart in my own ways. I'm not like book smart. I don't have an education, but I mean, I've managed to get my shit together somehow. I've had some great conversations. Yeah. So, but I'm like, oh my God, I might've been really smart if I was breastfed. You know, like maybe I would have some of those other smarts that I feel like I'm kind of missing, you know? Yeah. So it's like, that's a bummer. There's parts of me and I can blame that when I don't have parts of my life together. Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone has their thing. I mean, obviously there's, I know kids that like, had a healthy nuclear family, two loving parents, grandparents around, bonding, breastfed, like all good food and everything, no significant trauma. And they still end up becoming screw ups oh, totally. and like alcoholics and stuff. So most it, of them are. Most yeah. of them come from perfect families. You're like, what are you doing? It's, you had everything. Oh, well, I was bored. So it's weird. I did Coke and now here I am yeah, in rehab weird. 12 times later. It's weird, you know? Yeah. Um, so. So when you're a kid, there's no dad in the picture Mm-mm. ever, really. No, no. never. Well, my mom had boyfriends, and then my my 
dad, who I called dad was my grandfather, who right. the one who got me that night and who yeah. ended up raising me with my grandmother. But, so you, would you call him dad? Yeah. Like mom and mm-hmm. dad when you were little? Um, no, so what's weird is I actually used to call my grandma by her first name until I was like 10. I don't know if that was just from oh. being with her when she babysat the neighbors who called Usually her by her first name. Usually that's what kids do they're like at defiant smart ass no. age. And they're like, okay, Joe, whatever. I'm not doing my homework. You know that? You know what I'm yeah. talking about? And teenagers yes. get all like uppity like that. And it was weird. I got to a self-conscious point about it where somebody mentioned it because I was out with her and they're like, isn't that your grandma? And I was like, I- it's just weird. Nobody corrected me when I was a kid. of like, no, that's your grandma. Don't call her by her first name. Right. So I had to start consciously doing it. But I, everybody calls um, or called my my grandpa dad and my family, even oh, if he's okay. not their dad. So. <laughs> and so at what age did you realize like, hmm, he's cool and I love grandpa or dad, mm-hmm. but he's not my biological dad. Was there, you know, like a horrific awakening? Like some kids realize, you know, their parents tell them they're adopted when they're 14 and like they snap and it's just never the same again. Did you have a moment like that when you became old enough to understand that you had been essentially abandoned by dad? Yeah. You know, it was pretty early on. So my my mom tells it kind of like this. She told me like everything I would have ever needed to know about my dad and probably stuff you shouldn't tell a kid, like that he went to jail 20 days after I was born and he's got a neck tattoo of her name, (laughs) like a jail neck tattoo. Just like really random things that like maybe you don't want to like tell a little child. But so I heard little snippets from him and I think it was her way of kind of, oh, and she used to show me like baby pictures of him because we look identical other than the fact that he's black. But she used to show me baby pictures of him and kind of bring it up in these weird, subtle ways. And she said she was always waiting for me to ask. And I literally never asked about him one time. And I feel like it's one of those things where if you're not, if it's not something you have and then it goes away, like what is there to miss? I've always, I always kind of felt like, what am I missing if I never had it? You know? So I was never like, why don't I have a dad? Why don't I have this? I think it was really strange. I never even connected. I was so naive as a kid too, because I went to Catholic school with the same 10 kids my first 18 years of my life. I was so naive that it took me a while to even get self-conscious enough to realize that I didn't look anything like my family that was raising me. I look like no... I showed a picture of me and my mom to somebody the other day. They're like, who's that? I was like, that's my very white mother. Right. Like, that's my 100% yeah, Irish your family's mom. Irish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The family who raised me is Irish from yeah. Ireland. And I look nothing like any and of them. And your dad was black. Black and Native American. So yeah. you're like a different version of black, that black Irish. They say. Yeah. <laughs> you're like the real black <laughs> Irish. real black Irish. <laughs> um, Funny. And it was really like my mom has big green eyes. That's about all I got from her. Like right. I look nothing like anybody in on that side of my family. And it was really weird because I got growing up, I got made fun of for the way I looked, but I never even thought about it as like kind of being racist or like just because I didn't I didn't go to school with any mixed kids and I didn't look like anybody I went to school with or even any biracial kids or anything. Like then there was no messing up those gene pools. It was just Irish and Italian people for right. generations. Right. And so I, I really never, I ha, I struggled with like insecurities personally, but I never projected that onto like my family or lack thereof. I think it's right. just, I've always, because I started therapy really early at seven, like I've wow. always just kind of tried to take personal responsibility for pretty right. much everything, probably to a fault where I should have just said like, can you tell me more? Like what race? I didn't even find out what races I was until I was 11. Interesting. So, yeah. So your grandparents put you in therapy when you were seven? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. God, that's awesome. Thank yeah. God, right? I know. Thank God. Yeah. Thank therapy God. saved my life. Yeah. Therapy and Tony Robbins at the same year. So, yeah. yeah. So, 
since you didn't have your biological dad in your life in the traditional sense, I mean, thank God, it sounds like you had a great substitute who mm. was there for you. But has that innate missing link affected you in your adult relationships with men negatively? I think it did for a really long time, for sure. Oh my God, I I chose men that were horrible for me forever. I mean, abusive and verbally abusive, mentally abusive, physically abusive, like, or just didn't have their shit together, didn't know what they were doing. Like I chose people that I needed to fix, you know, which I think my mom did the same thing with my biological father as well. It's just... When you don't, I think not having that, or even my mom had boyfriends growing up and none of, she never ended up marrying. And I think just seeing those kinds of relationships and then not knowing any differently, like my grandparents had a very, they loved each other very much, but I felt like, you know, they're very old school Irish and they're not affectionate. And like, I just didn't know, I didn't know where to start with people. And it took me a very long time of having a lot of really terrible, tumultuous relationships that for sure, I could, you know, blame daddy issues all day long if I really right. wanted to. Um, I'm sure it stemmed from parts of that, of just like finding men who were the most horrible men possible for me. Right. Yeah. Women yeah. too. Just like, and friendships and like every, you know, everybody. It just like never ended of, oh my God, I picked the worst possible person to be in my <laughs> life. How did I do it again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've done that just yeah. once or twice. Yeah. Only once yeah. or twice. Yeah. Totally. It's interesting because my guy friends and I know as you start to get to know a woman, I mean, that's, we all kind of ask like, Hey, so who are your parents? Where do they live? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, so, they're still together. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, I mean, we all do this, you know, cause oh, you're, totally. you're looking for the huge red flags. And uh-huh. I'm sure women, you know, I'd be curious to know what women's are, if you have any of those, but it's like, so where's your dad live? Yeah. Oh, he lives in Cincinnati. You guys get along? Yeah, where's you know? your mom live? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like you're getting it like, oh, did dad bail? Was right. there sex abuse? Were they a yes. drug addict? You know, is there abandonment? And not like that that's a deal breaker because we all have our shit. But, but we want to know. It's like one of those first things you're looking for because if the person in this case, like said female has not done the work mm-hmm. to resolve that, then there's inherently going to be patterns. And, you know, I ask those questions because I know I have my mommy issues and my daddy issues and those things have played out have in more, all my relationships, you know? And a lot so, of guys have more mommy issues, I feel like, than daddy issues. Because I feel like, yeah. like mothers have a harder time bonding with their sons and then that just presents later yeah. on in life. But, yeah. you know. Yeah, mine were more like took me a long time to be willing to really commit to a relationship because my mom was very, our relationship was almost like best friends kind of vibe. Yeah. Well, yeah. Me and my mom too. It's almost like sisters when they're drug addicts. So there was kind of like, yeah, there was kind of like this emotional incest kind of boundary list vibe. So Mm -hmm. I I didn't know this until I was an adult and did a lot of work, but Mm -hmm. it was that feeling of like being responsible for someone. And so totally. that's why, as we were talking before, it's very recently, I'm like, I don't feel that sense of responsibility because I'm autonomous and I would only pick someone that is also autonomous at this point in my life. But being afraid to have kids, afraid to get married, not wanting to be monogamous, all that stuff, I had to really, really dig down to the bottom of it. And it's like, oh, shocker. It's mommy issues of feeling like as a little boy, I wasn't a little boy. I had to like be the man of the house kind of in a sense and be the man figure in the relationship in some ways. And God forbid my mom ever watches my <laughs> social media or anything. Hi, mom. I mean, you know, <laughs> she's worked through it. I've worked through it. It's it's all, you know, it's all good. Yeah. And and there's been, you know, awareness and growth around it. But it's it's just interesting how things that happen to us in those formative years, just unless we have the opportunity to be 
pushed by whatever circumstances or pain might be present later in life to really work that stuff out, you're literally just going to keep repeating the same pattern. You don't know what else until you the know. day you die. You, you know? only know what you've experienced in your life, period. Right. You can read all the romance novels and whatever, but unless you've had that experience, you're likely not going to make those choices when right. the situation presents itself. So if, yeah, if you don't, you know, work through that stuff when and as you're a little kid. And like we talked about, I went to therapy as a little kid. I worked through it at the time, but truthfully, it just takes time to mature and to recognize, okay, I've made a pattern of mistakes. Sometimes you need to make that pattern of mistakes to sit back and go, I'm not going to do that anymore. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or to even have the signs to recognize it. Like, that's why I just feel like the larger message of there's no such thing as the worst thing that's ever really happened to you unless you don't do something valid with it in the future, because it just means you're not learning from it. As long as you learn from every mistake you make, every bad relationship, every time you go to somebody because they're like your mom or they fill something in you that you were so comfortable doing as a little kid every time you at least recognize that, maybe they're still the person for you. But as long as you two can talk it out and you can recognize what you're doing, like that makes a world of difference than just going, nope, I don't want to see it. Mm -mm. Right. No, that's not me. That's so true. Like when it's, when those patterns still live in the shadow, they really repeat themselves because there's not an awareness. And once they're admitted, at least you might still do them sometimes. Yeah. But at some point you're going to catch yourself and like, oh, damn, I'm doing that thing again. Yeah. You know, and if you that. have a partner who's willing to recognize it with you, I think yeah. that's actually even more powerful than you both just going, oh no, you have issues, so you're not for me and I have issues, so I'm not for you. So let's just not even try. Right. Like, no, we all have fucking issues. Like, yeah. let's just go through it together and help heal each other and recognize that that's why we're here as human beings and likely why we're meant to even have relationships with each other to begin with. Like, other animals don't really have what we have as humans and what we're able to do for each other as this species who's able to help heal each other and stuff. All dogs can do is lick each other's faces and it's like we they can't do right, right. what we can do. When you you're know? talking about animals, the first one I came to remember was the penguins, you know, like a little penguin couple. <laughs> yeah. Like they have it so easy. They just chill. Like they they find their little they pair bond to that yeah. maid and they're like, you're my road dog. Let's do this. And they go do their little migration and don't say a lot. You yeah. Know? yeah. They just kind of trot along together and they, they're vibing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's the, the distinction. Is it not that, you know, we all obviously have our shit. Some yeah. degrees of trauma might be experienced to a greater or lesser degree. But I think in any, you know, friendships, romantic, whatever, it's like, it doesn't matter what your issues are as long as you share the willingness to work on them and to help each other do that. Whereas if you have one person who's all in and like their mission in life is to overcome these challenges and use them as catalysts for change and for evolution and one person's not and they're mm-hmm. sort of like, no, nah, I'm chilling back here. I'm mm-hmm. good. It's not going to last. Then it's not happening. It's not going to last at least. And and somebody asked me recently what my top, top, top like quality I need from somebody in a relationship is. Yeah. And it's self-reflection. And the reason it's not honesty and it's not trust and it's not all those other things is that if you don't have self-reflection and you're not being honest with yourself, how are you going to be honest with me or anyone else around you? You're going to think you're being honest, but until you have that self-reflection, like there's no way you're actually showing up 110% for yourself or your partner or anything else in your life. Like if you're not sitting back and going, is this the road I want to take? Is this where I want to be in life? Am I supporting my partner? Are they supporting me, et cetera? Like 
what are you really doing? Like you're being surface honest about the fact that you're happy, but you're not being like reflective. Right. Yeah. I think there's a superficial level of honesty. Like if you ask someone, are you honest? They're like, yeah, I pay my taxes. <laughs> if they give me an extra 20 at the bank, I give it back. Right. You know, like they don't cheat. It's like, we, yeah. we, we used to call this in recovery cash register honesty. And Ooh, when you've been like, like a, that. yeah, when you've been a criminal and a thief and the things like I and many of my best friends have been in our <laughs> former lives, then you get really proud of yourself and it's almost like an ego badge of honor. Like, I'm honest now. You know, it's like, <laughs> I didn't steal when I went to the bank yeah, today. <laughs> totally. It's like, okay, like that's cool. That's a good start. But yeah. what you're saying is that self-reflection and that self-honesty where you, you, know, you build the practice of being objective about oneself and really mm-hmm. see like your shortcomings, your, your character defects, your faults, and then also recognition of, of your higher self and your positive attributes. Like we are lost, I think, without the ability to do that. So totally. yeah, I agree. Yeah. So let's get into what you did to treat, you know, or what the system did and then you did to treat yourself. Because I know that's a huge part of your story is the word drugs, you know, medication. Yeah. And I really want to dig into that because we'll all like shoot the shit forever. And like, that's the main thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, I interviewed okay. Dr. Kelly Brogan, whose work oh, I'm, I assume you're familiar stuff. with. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and on it was on Skype. She was in New York. She was busy. I think we got like 45, 50 minutes and I was like, I was rushing through it, but I really didn't get to to approach that issue in its entirety. And that's one of the things I was most excited about talking to you about as someone who's kind of gone through that whole hamster wheel, because mm. um, I've been through a bit of the prescription med misdiagnosis, the whole thing, had to get off them. I've known quite a few people, a couple of whom I've been really close to that were just completely just tweaked by the whole pharmaceutical drug game. So at what age did your uh, therapist or whomever start to go, you know what, I think you have this, this, and this, and I have pills for that. What's what's your entry into the world of pharmacopoeia? So my mother came, so she got sober at a living uh, treatment facility when she was, when I was like, 10 or 11. And then she came to live with my grandparents and I was supposedly for a few months, which we talked about the codependency of like the family, which turned into two years. Um, <laughs> Classic. Of course classic. it did. Yeah. Of course yeah. it did. We're helping um, her. Yeah, we're helping her. She doesn't pay us any rent yeah, and whatever. We're but... helping her not grow up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, um, but anyway, they let us have a relationship. It was like the first time I'd really had a relationship with her because she'd been a drug addict and an alcoholic my entire life. I'd never spent any time with her sober. So I spent these two years with her sober and we all, my grandparents, my mom and I all go on vacation together. We had a great time. We came back a few weeks later. My grandparents go on a golfing trip and on vacation by themselves and they leave us home alone. During this time, um, I started to notice my mom started sponsoring somebody and she was very young. She was like 21 or 22 years old and she was a little too much fun, you know? And I could like tell at the beginning, like this is not, my mom is not strong enough for this, honestly. Right. And she did actually end up getting a different sponsor than my mom. But before she did that, she took her to a bar and my mom ended up relapsing. Oh, shit. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> Whoopsies. And that's what happens when you give people who should not be sponsors yeah. sponsorship. Tried to hide it for me for a few weeks. My mom is not very good at hiding when she's drinking or doing drugs. So um, I figured it out pretty post-haste. And I was the one who had to tell my grandparents when they came home from vacation. So that was a shitstorm. And um, I mean, like literally my grandfather dragging my mother out of the house, me, her holding onto the dorm door frame. And I, you know, kicked her fingers over and over and over again until they dragged her out and took her to rehab. 
Wow, like an episode of Intervention. Like an episode. I mean, Intervention is my whole life. Watch any episode of Intervention. Yeah. <laughs> that's my 27 years of my life, pretty right, much. Right. So, um, but after that, I you know, told my therapist who I'd been seeing since I was seven, same therapist, what happened. That same week, my grandmother went in and talked to him about it as well. And I think, I'm not sure who suggested it. I highly doubt it was him actually. But I think the combination of something he said and, and maybe a family friend suggested that like, you know, Tara should see a psychiatrist because of all the trauma she's seen. She's about to be a teenager. She's about to start high school. Like maybe there's something preventatively that he can give her to deal with all of this because I truthfully was not coping with it very well. You know, like I've spent two years building this relationship with my mother and now we're basically back at square one. And I only have like two friends because of the 10 kids I'm still going to school with. You know what I mean? Like I just didn't have like a huge support system. And I think somebody just suggested to my grandparents, you know, take her in and see what he says. So they took me to a psychiatrist and within 10 minutes, like five, 10 questions, I had my first diagnosis, which was bipolar disorder. Based on the fact that my, a relative in my family had been diagnosed. Yeah, that fast. Oh yeah. (laughs) So scary. Yeah. And I remember answering no to so many of the questions that you're supposed to answer yes to, to get the diagnosis. Like, no, I don't hear voices. No, I don't have hallucinations. Like what, what is, you know, I'm not familiar with the, um, ignore me while I'm on my phone. I'm not texting. I just do Instagrams (laughs) while we're, while we're going. People, I, when I pull my phone out in an interview, people are like, Dick, what are you doing? Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, go on. Tell me about all your problems. And I'm like just texting the homies. No, I'm just multimedia because I don't have a helper here today. It's all good. But yeah, what, like, fine. I know, you know, when I was diagnosed, I think it was like depression and anxiety or something sort of ambiguous. And they gave me some meds just when I was first sober. It's a disaster. Mm-hmm. But I never really know what bipolar is. So what what is that supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like very, very manic highs and very, very depressive lows, which I feel like I probably was exhibiting at the time just based on the fact that you know, I went from having depression at times to be like, I'm a relatively positive person just as the person that I am. So I feel like when really terrible life circumstances happen to you and you're a positive person, despite it all, that can easily be misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder because it's like, oh, well, sometimes she's depressed and sometimes she's like the happiest person we've ever seen. Well, yeah, sometimes life is depressing and sometimes life is fucking amazing. Like, and I recognized that as a teenager, like I was not depressed all the time. They would have had a very hard time diagnosing me with depression because when they asked me questions like, do you feel depressed hundred percent of the time? I'd be like, fuck no. <laughs> like I'm actually relatively fine considering all the fucked up shit I've seen in my life. Like, right. I have a sense of humor. I'm still getting straight A's. I have like at least two friends. So, you know, I'm in the school plays. I sing at church every Sunday. Like I'm doing fine, right? No, you have a problem and a label and a diagnosis and here's a pill. So I got put on lithium for the first time at 13 years old, right before high school started. I ended God, up that's on- that's so young. Isn't that's that, crazy. Like anytime yeah. I see 13 year olds now, I'm just want to be like, please tell me you're not on pills. Oh my God. Yeah. Even younger too, the fact that they're putting, I mean, it was really young then and I didn't know, I didn't go to school with anyone who was on meds. It was not the way it is now, but the fact that they're putting five-year-olds on ADD medication is like- they don't have ADD. They're five. Right? Like, what? They're 
five. Like, who wasn't insane right. when we were five? They have five DD. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> they have uh, sugar DD. Kids, like, <laughs> yeah, right. Kids are spazzes. They're supposed to be. So, yeah. how much of the? And I want to, you know, I really want to get into the specific drugs and what totally. they were supposed to be for and how you got off them and stuff like that because it's fascinating to me because I think a lot of people never make it out. Mm. But with the lithium, is the idea there that? if it's prescribed for what they thought or they diagnosed as bipolar, that it's going to eliminate those crazy manic highs and then those deep suicidal depressions and just kind of keep you in the middle. Is that the... That was the idea. Okay. Um, and it, I can safely say it did that. I turned into a complete zombie, which I feel like if you're not manic or deeply depressed, that's what it does. I mean, it kind of does that anyway, but certainly if you don't have anything to come down or come up from what is it going to do? It's going to turn you into a zombie. So that's right. what it did. And did you tell like any of your schoolgirl friends or anything like, oh, I have to take these pills because there's something wrong with me or was it like a secret or anything like that? Um, it was a little bit of both in that like my grandparents are very um, private. You know, they're like from Ireland. Like we don't tell they anybody anything. They have the Irish, anything. the Lucky Charms accent they and all that? They have the accent. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, cool. mm -hmm. Yeah, they're adorable. I'm not going to imitate it poorly, but I'll just, I'm picturing it in my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Lucky Charms guy. Those yeah. are the people who or Bono. Me. Like, that's cool. Or maybe Bono, yeah. right? <laughs> the, yeah. And it's interesting because uh, somebody asked me the other day, how do you not have a New York accent? I'm like, well, when you take properly speaking Irish people and really bad Long Island accents, you get me. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, because you don't have either one of those. No. I would have never guessed. You seem very Californian, you oh, know? Thanks. Yeah. Well, I've been out here I for a little while. I wouldn't detect that accent at all. Yeah. Uh, okay, so how long does the lithium thing uh, last? And then at what point were they like, you know what? Let's throw another one on that. Yeah. What's the cascade of, of pharmaceuticals? Fun. So uh, 13 was on lithium. By 16, I got diagnosed with, or maybe it was 15, I got diagnosed with ADHD, of course, um, even though, because I got one C plus on one test, God forbid, um, which was the lowest grade I'd ever brought home in my entire life. So my grandparents were like, something's wrong. We have to bring you in. And so I got put on ADHD what class medication. Was the, the C plus in? Math. Oh, well, well also, <laughs> who cares about math? <laughs> Also, they would take me out of math class to send me to therapy at school, like growing up. Wow. So of course, I'm not going to be like right. the best at math because right. I had to basically teach math to myself. Right. But um, but yeah, so it was a C plus in math. I'll never forget because I remember even when the teacher gave it to me, I was like, oh shit, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> like this is bad. Um, and so they put me on an ADHD medication and then my grades started plummeting. Like I was getting like Fs in like Spanish and science and math. So they brought me back to the psychiatrist and they were like, this shit's not working. <laughs> she is like, what? And I was wired. And like the only coping mechanism I really had in high school, besides my best friend, was singing and doing plays and doing shows. So when I went to audition for that year's show, instead of being able to audition, I just basically went like this and my voice cracked and I like couldn't do anything wow. that I like was able to do before. I basically, you know, they gave me what I was born on. Like it, it, the yeah. medication was called methadate. Okay. <laughs> like the meth is in wow. the name. I don't know wow. what, like how much more obvious you can get that you're putting the kid on a stimulant. So I mean, they, meth does make you focus though. I have to admit uh, as a prior user, of <laughs> it just makes you focus on stupid shit, like taking yeah. your TV apart and then not putting it back together. <laughs> Cleaning the toilet 
toilet with a fucking toothbrush. <laughs> like not things you should be focused on, like answering your old emails and, yeah, and such. Or like getting good grades in math. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's, yeah. Okay. So that's what I felt like it did to me. Did basically. you take radios apart and shit when you were on that? Mm-mm. Did you get like, were you a tweaker in that I, sense? I literally was... Um, I just felt like how I kind of feel now when I drink caffeine, I'm very sensitive to caffeine uh-huh. and it'll make me very wired. And then I like get sick. Like I literally, I would go up to people and be like, your cat, Jesus Christ, from your next life in 25 years from now says, thank you. And I would just like walk away. And people were like, normal. That's very normal. <laughs> like, right. I was a little wired. I was a little crapped right. out. Totally. So they sent me back to the psychiatrist and he was like, oh, that's not from the medication. That's because lithium can make it really hard for children to do math and science and grasp other languages, which is why I wasn't doing well in Spanish either. And I was like, wait a minute, (laughs) hold on. First of all, why were we not told this when you first put me on the first drug? Why were we not told this when you put me on the second drug to address the very clear symptoms that you just said are related to the first drug? And I'm not taking the ADD drug anymore because you just said that it's causing like more problems with this other drug. So his solution was to take me off of both and then put me on a drug called Lamictal, which was very new to the market at the time as a mood stabilizer. What the, era would have the, would this have been? 2002, 2003. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So this was like just when, we, when you watch the documentaries and like when they really started amping up, like prescribing people a ton of pills at once, this was about that time was like the early 2000s. And I was, I would say one of the first uh, child experiments wow. for this whole culture shift of like, oh, let's just medicate all the kids. Let's right. just 1984 our way through this. It'll work right. out. You know, it's funny. I think when I was on meds, it was around that time too. Yeah. They were giving them their lives. Yeah, interesting. Did you ever take something called Effexor? Uh, I did not, but I've heard of it. Oh, okay, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I digress. <laughs> okay, so now, all right. So now you're on the lithium. Now you I'm off s- the lithium. I'm oh, off, off the ADD medication, but okay. I'm on a medication called the Mictol, which okay, is now Okay, so you got new- off the other two and this yeah. is like this new supposedly yeah. cutting edge thing. Okay, yeah, that, by the way, but if you get a rash, you have to call immediately because a rash can kill you if you're oh on this God. drug. So. Isn't that crazy with pharmaceuticals? Because, you know, you're, I'm sure, into supplements and health and all yeah. this stuff. And you see, like, I have my biohacking shit. Yeah. People that are really wrapped up up in the matrix will be, I'll say, oh, you should try this supplement or this herb or something like that. And they're like, was it safe? I mean, how do I know it's going to be? I know. And then they're on like three medications. I'm like, dude, have you ever read the bottle? It's like, may cause explosive diarrhea and your ears might bleed and like all these gnarly side effects. And people, I mean, if you read the side effects on aspirin. Yeah. It's gnarly. And someone's like, I don't know, reishi mushrooms? That sounds a little intense. Well, I talk in this book about how aspirin kills children with Rye syndrome every year and how if you want, a, you know, because children or parents give to their children aspirin because they're sick, they have a fever, et cetera. And Rye syndrome, the first thing that happens as the symptoms present is you get a fever, you start vomiting, you get sick. It's the same symptoms that the parents give the children aspirin for. And then Rye syndrome, in Rye syndrome, your brain just starts swelling and then the kids just die. They die on the couch or in bed or whatever. And the parents have no idea because they didn't know that the symptoms they were medicating for actually can kill the kids. So yeah, no, aspirin can kill you. And white willow, which or willow bark, which I recommend in the book and 
have on my site and recommend all the time to people for pain and anything you take aspirin for, headaches, fever, et cetera, because it's a safe alternative and it mm-hmm. can't give you rice syndrome and it won't kill you. So is uh is that white willow bark what aspirin is derived from in the first place? Yes. They have very similar similar chemical names. Uh-huh. So white willow bark's chemical name is salix and aspirin's is like salicis. So Oh interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's trippy with pharmaceuticals. I mean not I mean maybe not so much like the psychoactive ones, but most pharmaceuticals originally came from a plant and they like isolate the one molecule that does the things. And then they take out all the stuff that nature or God put in there to balance out the benefits with side effects. And they just give you maximized benefit with all the side effects because it's it's not, you know, a holistic synergistic compound anymore. It's really yeah. interesting. But you can't patent a plant. So yeah. they couldn't make any money off of it. But yeah. that's, you know. So what happened on this uh, third experiment of a drug? Did Was that effective or was it a horror show also? Uh, it was a little bit of a horror show, but I stayed on that drug for eight and a half years. Um, oh my because, God, that's a long ass time. <laughs> well, I just didn't want to go on any more drugs. You know, like my doctor would be like, how you doing? And I'd be like, I'm good. I wasn't, <laughs> but I knew what happened the last time I said I wasn't good. You know, I got put on more drugs. So um, for me, it was just kind of about the lesser of two evils of like, okay. And also at that point, I'm like, maybe this is what normal feels like. I don't know. You know, like right. maybe this is what I'm supposed to feel like as a normal human being. Because at that point, of course, I'm convinced I'm broken and I'm convinced something's wrong with me. And I'm convinced I need a pill to fix it because a doctor that we've paid $125 an hour has told me that something's wrong with me. Well, they have that white coat too. I mean, you got to, that's, right? that's a and lot the of, name tag, yeah. like how fancy is yeah. that? And someone has to call you in their room, oh, yeah. you know, you got to wait. There's like five other people waiting there. Right. Like, oh, this guy's got to be good. Right. So you know? when it comes to the misdiagnosis issue, I mean, for you or for other people, how often do you think pain and trauma is misdiagnosed as mental illness? Oh, Boy, that's you know? a I mean, really do you think that was your question. case? Because I hear about your childhood. I'm like, okay, this girl's eventually going to be screwed up and have problems <laughs> somehow. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily make you mentally ill. No. You know? And that's the thing. I talk in, in Wild Habits about the difference between facts and opinions. So it was a fact, right, that I had a, a traumatic childhood. It was an opinion that that was going to fuck me up. It was a fact that I was put on drugs. It was an opinion that I was going to need drugs for the rest of my life. Like, And I feel like people were taking these facts and then they were forming their own opinions and then they were going, okay, this is how we fix it. Instead of forming some kind of positive opinion. And and not that I'm saying that they weren't doing what they thought was the best thing at the time. Trust me, I don't think my grandparents were trying to like put me on a bunch of drugs. Like they'd spent their entire life trying to keep me off drugs. They were not seeing this as putting me on a bunch of psychoactive drugs, even though that's what they were doing. They were seeing this as following doctor's orders, really, Mm -hmm. of like, something's wrong with your kid. This is what you need to do to fix it. And I know now parents... Like when they get told that there's, you know, there's lots of arguments and lots of conversations between parents who one believes that you should listen to a doctor and one believes you should either listen to your kid or listen to your intuition or, you know, go a more natural route. But I honestly believe if they knew that there was a more natural route, 
they absolutely would have gone that way. But but no, I mean, I was diagnosed with shitty life disorder. Like, you know what I mean? That's right. what I had. Right. I had... SLD, yeah. quite common. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had like traumatic yeah. childhood disorder. I didn't yeah. have bipolar disorder, yeah. but like... TCD, another one. Yeah, <laughs> very common. You yeah. have that one too, I think. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thing too, on the other side of it, you know, just to give you know, your grandparents and our parents a break who really don't know what to do with the kid who's having any kind of problems and they listen to the doctor. You also have to understand, I think from the perspective of psychiatric medicine and those doctors, they're not a spiritual teacher that can be like, whoa, you just need God in your life. Yeah. Like that's not their role. Plus you I already know? had God in my life. So they were at a loss there. Yeah, so they don't, <laughs> you know, it's like, they're just not provided with those answers. Just like if you go through physical disease and you go see the Western allopathic doctor. It's not that they're a bad person. It's just the business model, their education model, everything is just pointing toward surgery and drugs. Yeah. And in a, and I'm not saying in all psychiatry or in therapy that the model is this, but the most prevalent, I would say in our culture is like, okay, tell me about your childhood. Oh, wow. Trauma, problems. Now you have symptoms of that that are uh, manifesting in a multitude of ways. And we have a pill for all of those manifestations. It's not really like their job in some cases to really find a spiritual solution and like turn you on to Marianne Williamson or like, you yeah. know what I'm saying? It's just yeah. like, that's not in their repertoire often. You well, know? we're diagnosing problems as disorders. Right. And then we're building an education system where doctors are going through school to diagnose problems as disorders because they feel, oh, I have something that I feel very comfortable. Even as a physician, I was talking to a friend who's a physician the other day and he just straight up said, I feel very comfortable prescribing people antidepressants. And I was like, how do you feel comfortable being the psychiatrist? Like, you're not a fucking psychiatrist. I'm sorry. Like the fact that regular everyday Navy doctors are allowed to just prescribe people antidepressants and mood stabilizers and anti-anxiety medication, like we've gone way too far. Like that's not because not only did the psychiatrist, as far as I'm concerned, not have the educational, and I'm not saying they don't get a good education. I'm saying they don't have to learn any alternatives to what the pharmaceutical right. companies provide. So right. not only is the psychiatrist not even getting enough information to, I feel like, make a good decision every time that's a holistic decision for the patient, but like, you didn't learn about any of it. You didn't have to take like one, you had to take maybe one psych class like six years ago and you're allowed to just prescribe people whatever you feel is necessary at the time. You used to have to like give them a referral to go see a psychiatrist. Now doctors can prescribe whatever they want. Oh, which, really? That's interesting. Isn't that strange? I didn't yeah. really realize it had gone that huh. route, but apparently. So after eight years on the one drug that I can't pronounce. Lamectol, yeah. Lamectol. <laughs> How did you finally get off that or did you start having to combine it with other things? So I started on the Mictol. The next year I was on a muscle relaxer called Flexerol. The next year I was on a muscle relaxer called Celebrex. Why did you need uh, muscle relaxers? So I have really bad scoliosis and I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when I was um, on the cusp of being 17 years old. So at 17, I was already on four different drugs. Damn. And then I got put on anti-anxiety medication and then I got put on a painkiller and then I got put on a nerve blocker. And then when I was 24, I was on 14 different drugs. Holy crap. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then what happens when those drugs start interacting negatively? Oh, that's so fun. Um, no, it's not <laughs> fun at all. No, I, I mean, I, I ended up in the hospital like every 
I was in the hospital every month for at least a week for oh years. Because my, my kidneys were shutting down, my liver was shutting down. Like not only was I taking all these drugs, I wasn't hydrating. I'd right. never drank a smoothie in my life. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't right. eating properly. Like my entire diet in New York was gluten and dairy. Like yeah. literally I wasn't taking care of myself at all, not just physically or mentally or whatever. Like, and then the more I relied on these pills, the less inspired I was to go back to self-help books and go back to therapy and go, you know, cause you're like kind of, they kind of convince you that this is supposed to be your answer. Right. So you're like, I don't need any of that shit. I don't need to read any more Tony Robbins books. Like I read that shit like a hundred times when I was a kid. I'm fine. And you're just less likely to do these things that are actually good for you because you feel like you're doing the right thing by taking the pill. But really every pill on top of every other pill, not only is making your mind cloudier, but it's giving you less coping mechanisms. And it's not giving you the clarity to really accept that like you can change because you think that the pill is going to do it for you and the pill's not doing the work. You still have to do the work. Oh man. Yeah. I, that, I think that's really important is that it's like, I think with true personal development and personal growth, it requires a certain degree of desperation, at least at first Definitely. to really do the real shit, you know, to yeah. go through the dark night of the soul. And if you're numbing out, whether that be, prescribed drugs or street drugs or whatever, there isn't, you lose the impetus to do that. It's just like, for me, when I got sober, I had to start working on myself because if not, I would have, I would go back to self-medicating and that was like sure death and destruction. So I was like, oh God, I have to learn how to meditate. I have to read spiritual books (laughs) and, you know, go to these seminars and just all the stuff that I did and continue to do. At what point did you finally have enough and start to look at the prospect of getting off all of that shit? You know, there were a few catalysts. I think the number one thing was in January of 2011, I got a call from my best friend. And in that call, she told me that our other best friend um, had taken her own life. And she had been on and off pharmaceutical drugs about the same time that I had because she had also... And medicated for the same thing, childhood trauma that just nobody wanted to really deal with and just said, take this pill, this should help. And it just really never helped her. And, um, but it was so devastating. Even when you know someone is suicidal or has been for a long time or is depressed, like when they actually do that, you're like, shit. Like not only is it devastating, but it's like, well, shit, you feel like you maybe could have done something or whatever. So about two months after that happened, my entire group of friends disbanded. I feel like I had no support. I was in an abusive relationship. I was working in a toxic job, toxic company. I didn't have any friends. Um, I tried to take my own life. And when that failed and it failed, I feel like, you know, probably the best thing that's ever, I mean, definitely the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, I don't want to say that doing that is the best thing that's ever happened to me, but the fact that I did not succeed at that is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Because in that moment, when I realized that I was completely numb and could feel absolutely nothing, not only did I realize that I was actually a divine human being who just made a lot of fucking mistakes, but the next logical conclusion is I just have to not make mistakes anymore. And if I want to do better and I want to think better and I want to be better, I also probably shouldn't be on 14 different drugs. 
because that's probably not helping me. And this is my longest and most toxic relationship. Like, fuck all these dudes that like whatever have been terrible for me and the friends I've had and the relationships and my terrible family dynamics. Like this is my longest and most toxic relationship of all is my relationship to my medication and the fact that I can't go anywhere without it. I can't, you know, do anything without it. I rely on it for everything. And like, maybe I don't even need it. Did your purse sound like a maraca? Yes, it did. <laughs> Starting in high school, <laughs> I would always yeah. rattle down the hallways. Chica, chica, chica. Yeah, you, yeah, I know, I know yeah, that. My I've, backpack always rattling. I've pills. heard some of those purses in my time. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've probably figured out that I'm a pretty hardcore researcher when it comes to finding healthy products, right? Well, one of the things I've been searching for for a while is the number one best organic bedding that you can find. There's a lot of cheap, crappy stuff out there. And so I was really excited when I found this company, Altera Pure, and I got them on the phone when I thought about running their ads. And I do this with everyone, by the way, that I run ads for. I got them on the phone and I really grilled them about their whole process the company philosophy, where the cotton comes from, where it's made, how it's made, who's making it, the freaking water that goes in the soil. You guys know I'm hardcore. And Altera Pure passed my test, my scrutinizing test with flying colors. These guys make not only really well-made and safe bedding, but it is actually really soft and comfortable. I don't know. They cracked the code on making soft organic sheets, which are actually quite rare. A lot of the organic stuff is like freaking sandpaper. So these are just beautifully constructed sheets that are really good for you. They're organic, no pesticides. They're non-GMO. They're very environmentally and socially sustainable. And they also are just um, very transparent. You can find out anything you want to know. You can call them. I don't know if you'll talk to the CEO, but you'll talk to someone. They'll answer any question you have, and they will prove to you beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are, in fact, making the healthiest bedding in the world. So if you want to check it out, go over to alterapure.com. That's alterapure.com. Enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout and save 15%. Pretty cool, right? I always try to get you guys a discount. It works out well for everyone. I win, the company wins, and you win. So go to, once again, alterapure.com. Enter the code LIFESTYLIST and you will save yourself 15% off your order. So the suicide thing, yeah. you you have scars on your wrist to prove it, I hear. Sure do, yeah, yeah. sure, yeah. And in that situation, how close did you get? And do you remember, like, what was that subjectively like? Was there a point where you're like, wow, I think I'm leaving right now? Or were you laying there like, ah, shit, this isn't working. This sucks, but I can't get up because I'm bleeding. My ex, well, my boyfriend at the time, who that week became my ex, showed up, had a key, unlocked my apartment, which is so weird because I hadn't seen him in all that day. I think I probably sent him a cryptic text like three hours before, but didn't, I mean, was, I didn't want anyone to know what I was doing. So while it was cryptic, it wasn't like, I'm going to go kill myself. It was like, I don't even remember, but whatever it was, he like got a little like ding, ding, ding. I should probably go and check to see if she's okay. So he showed up at my place and like, I was just in the bathroom filling up a bathtub and like had just kind of finished, if you will, and was about to just get in the bathtub and bleed out. That was my plan. And he came and, you know, was like, what the fuck did you do? And like wrapped my arm up and was like, we got to get you to the hospital. And I was like, I can't go to the hospital. They'll commit me to the psych ward. Like I got to just, I got, this is something I got to just deal with on my own because I'm not trying to go to the psych ward. 
and just wrap my arm in gauze and like, uh, that's probably what, you know, I don't want to, I guess I have to send him a nice little thank you <laughs> card at some point because honestly, like I hate to say it was him because like, but if the entire terrible relationship was for the blessing of him showing up and saving my life in that moment, like, you know, that's what it was all for. It's interesting that so many people on medication harm themselves or other people. Right. You know, it's just like, and I don't want to politicize an issue, but it just, it brings to mind like all of these school shootings and stuff like that. And all these kids are on meds, they're man. all on meds. And it's so weird that... And they're, the drugs are not designed for children. That's what I try to explain to right. people. When I got put on these drugs, this was like the first time they were ever putting kids on these drugs. And they were not at the time. Now they are, scary enough, in the last like two years. Now they're allowed to do clinical trials on children. I don't know who's letting them, but, right? but, but <laughs> some when, evil parents are like, how much money do you get? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah here's oh, Johnny. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. That's so gnarly. Yep. No, they were not allowed to do clinical trials of these drugs on these kids, but they were allowed to prescribe kids the drugs, which I think yeah. is crazy. How are you going to know how an adult dosage of a drug does on a 10 year old child? And everyone is different. Like, I just even think the fact that we're going around saying, I can medicate you and immediately tell you exactly what, meanwhile, there's a hundred drugs for every diagnosis now, right? And, oh, I can tell you exactly what drug you need to be on and exactly how much, and that's going to help you. Like how? We're all completely different. Like I don't, how is that supposed to work physiologically? I don't get that because I've never actually seen that play out, especially in children. How can you tell how an adult dosage of a drug is going to do on a child? Right. I wouldn't feel comfortable. Thank God I'm not a psychiatrist. I would not feel comfortable. So what, there'd be a lot of talking going yeah. on in your office. <laughs> Endless talking. Endless. And, and then, so what happened after your suicide attempt and what led you to eventually start to want to get off of all these drugs? So in that moment, I realized, you know, this is my most toxic relationship. I got to figure out what drugs I need and what drugs I don't need. Now, this is my addict. I didn't realize I was an addict at the time either because I didn't realize I'd been taking, you know, some of these drugs I'd been on for like 11 years already. You know what I mean? Well, not the same drug, but I'd been on drugs for 11 years at that point. And I'd been on the same drug, Lamictal, for eight and a half of them. So I think I just got to the point where I realized that just it wasn't, I needed to see what I need. Like I was on too much. I knew that much. I knew I probably shouldn't be taking Valium and Xanax at the same time, for instance, even though a psychiatrist had felt completely comfortable giving those to me at once after my Damn. best friend took her life. So on top of all the stuff oh I was my already God, you on. you must have been such a fucking space cadet. Dude, I was such a fucking space cadet. <laughs> oh like, my God. Like, no idea. How did you even like keep car keys? How like, did I, honestly? I was so, that was, <laughs> how did I drugs, have a job? Like, yeah, I don't understand. Those drugs like rot your brain. I'd never taken Xanax, but I used to take a lot of Valium and I would like, days would disappear because I took them to get high. I wasn't like treating something. But if I was desperate and I had no other good drugs, I would do Valium and I'd like come to the next day and have no idea where I was. Mm -mm. It was crazy. There were ants like crawling all over my apartment that I didn't even realize for like a week. You know, like you just don't, you literally don't see shit. Like it's yeah. like there's stuff happening around you and it's like this weird tunnel vision that it gives you like whatever is right in front of your face. When I started taking those, I felt like that really put me over the edge. And that's definitely what solidified the decision of like, okay, I can't function. Like I'm not functioning. I'm in the hospital all the time. I'm going to lose my job. Like I just need to figure out what I need to be on and what I don't need to be on. So I came off everything cold turkey. 
Wow. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> do not oh my do God. that. <laughs> Please she's, don't do that. She's waving to our viewers Please on camera. Please don't do that. <laughs> don't like, oh do it. Oh my God, I can't imagine that. No, no, no. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because, and I didn't know, like, and that's why I felt like I had to write, especially my first book, but this book and all my books. And that's why I feel like I have to just say this message of like, just don't do what I did. Like, this is my story, but don't do it. Because I went through three years of pharmaceutical withdrawal. Three years of throwing up every single, well, at least the last two years, it was only every morning. But the first year, it was like every 15 minutes. Like it was coming off of heroin, coming off of meth, like the worst hangover of your life, dehydrated for years and years on end, like at the same time. I mean, because I've seen my mom come off heroin at home and it was worse. I like, yeah. I hate to even say that, but even my mom will be like, that was way worse. <laughs> than, right, right. Than when I came off I mean, heroin. heroin, like you basically just feel like you have the flu and yeah, like really, weeks. and you're yeah. really sad for like, yeah, five yeah. days, seven days. Yeah. And after that, you kind of come out of it. You yeah. Know? Yep. And uh, no, three years. And I, you know, wow. and I knew, listen, and I also didn't do it the right way. So had I gone into a hospital and slowly weaned off and gotten IV bags and all kinds, like I literally did this at home in bed by myself. Wow. Don't do it. Were you still living back east at that time? I lived in New York when I first came off my drugs. Yeah, in an apartment by myself, just me and my dog. Oh my God. Could have died like a million times. Yeah, (laughs) that is seriously. Because I remember when I realized that I was like more nuts on my antidepressants and I would try to stop, I would go fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. It was really, really hard. And I tried to kind of do it on my own. And then I call my shrink all desperate, like, can you just leave some in front of the building? <laughs> like he would like leave little oh, samples like in the bushes shit. for me. And oh, this is like no. a legit psychiatrist oh, yeah. in Century City, like yeah. down the road here. Yeah. And and then I was like, Yeah, this is not like, no. Is I know good. what it's like to be dependent on drugs. I was sober at the yeah. time, you know. And so and so I told him, and thank God he had enough integrity to like, okay, if you really if this really isn't working for you and you don't want to try all the other ones I can give you. And yeah. I'm like, no. Then he weaned me off very slowly, but it was still gnarly. So I can't even imagine <sighs> on one drug, so it's hard gnarly. to get off. And I hear a few stories from people every day now that this is what I do. And yeah, they came off one drug and it's nine months later and they're still having brain zaps or just right. like weird. What's a brain zap? Brain zap is basically when it presents in different ways, but it's when you're like driving and you just forget what the fuck you're doing. Uh, It's like when, like I would have them where colors would change or I'd be looking at trees and they'd be like blue and then they'd be purple and then they would, it's just your mental synapses are like trying to reconnect Mm -hmm. the right way without these things you've been putting in your body for so long supporting them, you know, or fucking them up or whatever they were doing. They're trying to get back to homeostasis. And instead, it's just like your perception of reality for weeks to months to years on end can really take a beating. So during this three years, at what point did you start to look into herbs and health practices and personal development and all that to start to recover on the natch? So that came on the natch. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where that came from. (laughs) I have like these weird reserve terms in my head. Like I probably haven't said that in 10 years or something. I love that. Maybe it's like my old drug, you know, damage. Just like, fine, but it's entertaining to me. And thankfully to you too. So so at what point did you start to, uh, you know, learn the stuff you know now, which is seemingly a vast body of knowledge? So you know how it is when you're like in this cloud of just using and not realizing your life is fading away and whatever. Like I had these books on my shelf 
Luke for probably like 10 years about natural healing and mind-body connection and like using your energy and ESP and like self-realization and Tony's books I'd carried around with me for 25 years and like just hadn't read them until I really, they just started calling to me. And I just like, when I was in bed and I was sick and I had nothing to do, I would just read these books because that was all I could do. I couldn't like talk to anyone. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't do like, I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't do like everything made me nauseous except for reading. So the only thing I could do was like sit and either stare at the ceiling waiting to throw up again because it had been like five minutes and read these books. (laughs) And I started immediately figuring out that these books were speaking directly to the ailments that I had been medicating for so long, which was crazy. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me I can just like drink garlic tea and like, I don't have to take fentanyl? Like that's, no. And then I tried it and I was like, dude, all I have to do is drink garlic tea. I didn't have to take fentanyl. Like what was I doing? Oh my God. Fentanyl is gnarly Fentanyl is so gnarly. I mean, it kills thousands of people every day. It's killing thousands of people every day right now. And I came off of it seven years ago telling people like, don't, this drug is not. And they were, it was weird that they even put me on it because at that point they were very hesitant to give it to people who weren't like dying of cancer. But I got like a recommendation from some gnarly doctor that was like, yeah, she's tried everything and every like she's very opiate intolerant and everything else makes her sick. So they put me on these patches that would go right into my bloodstream. Right. I've heard the fentanyl patches are super scary. Super scary. Well, plus yeah. addicts, you know, they can they do all kinds of fucked up things with them too. They eat yeah. them. They like do like just don't don't. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. Well, they have the lollipops anyway. You don't even need to eat the patches because they got fentanyl lollipops. They made it delicious <laughs> for you. Crazy. Oh man. But so. So what yeah. were some of the things that you started to discover in terms of lifestyle practice and herbs and supplements and things like that? So one of the first books. So the first three books I read were Autobiography of Yogi. The Alchemist, and The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And all of those books are about personal development and healing and like natural healing and meditation and finding your own path. And that really the idea is that, you know, your own path is is you and it will always kind of lead you back to where you came from. And if you can use your past and use your story to your advantage, then that's really the only place that you know, bad shit has in people's lives is like, if you can grow from it and learn from it and prevent other people from hopefully going through what you went through. And in reading those books, I just got really, really inspired to change. I started meditating. I started like doing yoga. I started working on, I started journaling a lot and working on just what I really wanted my life to look like. I made a list of my life, the rest of my life goals, which I'm still doing and will happily tell anybody who asks me because it was make music, meditate, move to California, get famous, save the world. <laughs> I like that. That's good. So, That's good. Yeah, still working on some of them. But, yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, I really... And I put that on my fridge and I just looked at it every day and I journaled it out and I wrote and I like you know, made connections with new people. And I started abandoning people in my life who were toxic for me. And I started treating people the way I wanted to be treated and stopped fighting with my family. Like I literally just wouldn't fight with them. Like if they tried to be like aggressive or whatever, I would just send them love and light and just be as positive as I could be until, you know how people get when you won't fight back, they get bored. They won't, they they find other people, you know? And I realized that was the first time that I realized that I could control my relationships with other people based on my reactions. And then I just started practicing better habits, better reactions, better 
ways of living, ways that were focused on self-improvement because I knew if that was my focus, there was no way I wasn't going to get better. I didn't know it was going to take three years, (laughs) but I knew it was going to be a temporary thing for, you know, having the rest of my life back. And I was 24 at the time. And I'm like, you know, I'm still young enough that if I start now, like I could have a life still in my twenties. And if I, but if I go back, which is very tempting in the first few weeks and months when you're very sick and you know, if I just take the pill again, I'll be fine. It's very tempting, but I just felt like, God, I've already, even after the first week, I'm like, I've already come so far. Why would I go back? Totally. Because, and I didn't, I didn't expect, it was this weird synergy that happened because when I first came off the drugs, I did not expect to be off them forever. That was not the point. The point was to see what I needed and see what I didn't need, right? And then I started using these natural alternatives and they actually worked to do the things I had taken the drugs for before. And then I was like, maybe I don't need the drugs. And then the longer I was off them, I was like, wait a minute, I'm not bipolar. <laughs> like, wow. wait a minute, I don't have anxiety. Like, God wait a minute. Damn, man. Isn't <laughs> that crazy? Yeah, I mean, yeah. and a lot of them I realize now would augment my pain and augment my symptoms. So yeah, I mean, I have scoliosis. My spine is still curved. I still have arthritis, but I've I've pinpointed not only environmental factors, like I've moved out to California and I've done things like that that can help, but natural ways to support my body, things that I'm eating, anti-inflammatory diet, like just these things that no one had ever suggested to me would actually help. And then once those things actually help, I'm like, why would I ever go back to doing the stuff that never helped me? There's a, it's just worth mentioning before I forget, because I could email you or something, but (laughs) I interviewed a doctor who's kind of down, he's in Huntington Beach, but he's probably closer to you than he is to me, maybe, or at least in the middle. Yeah, Yeah, in the middle. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. John Bergman, and he's a chiropractor, world famous, has people from literally, like you go in his office, it looks like a freaking like UN (laughs) rescue clinic in Uganda or some shit. I mean, there's people from all over the world that fly here to see this chiropractor. And I I have scoliosis too, uh-huh. maybe not to that degree, but you know my spine's kind of mm-hmm. tweaked. Don't have arthritis, but just crazy back pain forever. It's a total pain in the ass. Yeah, and uh, and I went to see him and I interviewed him on the show. I forget, sorry, listeners, what episode it was, but he claims, and I believe that he's telling the truth that like that can be fixed by his particular protocol, super easy. I just haven't gone and done it myself because it's like three grand. It takes three months, and you have to go there and get adjusted once a week, three times, or you have to go take three trips. So it's mm. a pretty intensive thing. But I, I mean, see my chiropractor three times a week, do? so I might oh, as well go do? see yeah. him. Yeah. So, but I mean, he gets people, he rids people of fibromyalgia, all kinds of arthritis, like crazy shit with the system that he's developed, which has a lot to do with working, you know, like old school chiropractic of working with the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So he does like standing x-rays and all these HRV tests. And it's very extensive, like the whole... A testing model. And I mean, sitting down with him, he's just like, oh, you have what? He's like, that's easy. Give me like a week and that's cured. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, but he doesn't seem full of shit. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So yeah. he's he's on my bucket list. But then I went for stem cells because I'm like, that's faster. I don't have to drive to goddamn Huntington Beach once a week and take a whole day, you know? But that he's on my vision board too. And stem oh, cell nice. treatments have, and yeah, I have it nice. in my, and now it's a vision book, but it's like Bergman Family Chiropractic. Mm. I have their logo in there and I'm like, mm, I'm going to get there because- Yeah, we I, should do it together. Yeah, right? Yeah, seriously. But yeah. he's, I mean, if you listen to the interview with yeah. him, it's it's very convincing. Yeah. I'm like, 
Chiropractic saved my life. I think he honestly. can actually fix me. Which is really funny because so many of my doctors for my spine and everything my whole life were like, don't ever see a chiropractor. They'll fuck you up forever. And some of them can and will. Yeah. I see ones that are very gentle. The chiropractor I has have does babies. She does like newborn babies. Right. So and pets right. and like children. So I see like the most gentle chiropractor. And also she's very intuitive and she she understands stuff that's going on with me that I don't it's like weeks later I'm like, how did you know? <laughs> she's right. like, mm, don't worry about it. Yeah. So yeah. um but I just think, yeah, there's so many alternatives. Chiropractic was something that it took me a really long time to embrace because and this is, you know, this is a right before my first book's about to come out. And I'm like, I still have this voice in my head of doctors telling me, oh no, it'll hurt you. Oh no, it's not for you, you know? And like, wait, dude, this, I educate people about not listening, not not listening to doctors, but not, you know, understanding that their education can be limited at times and maybe it doesn't apply to you. So why am I still letting that play in my head and not doing what might be best for me? And then- Realizing, oh my God, this is what I needed the whole time. I can't function without chiropractics because what it's doing is specifically adjusting your spine, which is what I specifically need adjusted. So it affects everything. It affects your digestion, the way you walk, your posture, like the way your brain functions. It really affects your mood. Yeah, totally. When I get adjusted by a, a good chiropractor, I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> oh, what was I worried about? It's crazy. Like it you get really is. neurotransmitter download or some shit. It's really profound. <laughs> yeah. So so you move to uh, California and you start pursuing, you know, alternative health and all of this stuff and meditating and just really like committing. What were some of the other habits you mentioned, like an um, anti-inflammatory diet? What were some of the other herbs and supplements and stuff specifically that you really noticed an impact from? So we were talking before about how, you know, the often the supplement is, or the the pharmaceutical is derived from the supplement or the natural alternative. Yeah. Um, that's why I call them natural alternatives more than supplements because they truly are because almost every pharmaceutical is derived from something in nature that actually works to treat the thing. Right. So one of the first things that I started taking, I replaced um, Valium with was an herb called Valerian. Which, oh yeah. <laughs> you have Valerian. I love that. Yeah. yeah it's it smells amazing. like feet. <laughs> it smells like feet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially when you like, what I did was just get a little Valerian plant and then just cut the roots off because it was like the least expensive option. And I was super, super, poor at the time. Right. So, and the roots really smell like feet. Do they? <laughs> they smell like feet and when dirt. They're fresh? Oh yes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and so, but I used to just cut off little parts of the root and then make myself some herbal tea every day. Um, I actually have that on my blog, one of my first blog posts, um, funny enough. And then like things I replaced fentanyl with were like skullcap, turmeric, ginger, garlic, and things I replaced my things I used to take for, you know, foul moods and things like that. Um, like GABA, 5-HTP, St. John's wort, still my go-tos pretty much every single day. And then I, I have to take a bunch of stuff for my skin because I, a lot of the pharmaceuticals I were used to be on were for like cystic acne and eczema oh, and psoriasis, yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think a lot of the pharmaceuticals I was on were actually causing because... They tend to just not let your body do what it's supposed to yeah, do naturally. They jack up your hormones too. Totally. And I was on birth control and, every, you know, I was right. on everything. Everything you can name. God, that's enough. <laughs> just being on birth control will just screw you up. Like, a, lot of a lot of women don't realize that, you know? Yeah, like, well, you're attracted to completely different people on and off birth control too. Yeah. So I often wonder like how that ends up affecting people's whole lives. Like if you meet someone on birth control and marry them on birth control and then you get off to have kids, like... What if you're not attracted to that person anymore, right? you know? No shit. So. Yeah, it's a good idea, ladies uh, listening, to get off birth control uh, <laughs> and really decide if you want to be with the person you're with. Yeah, because it, totally. it affects your, um, what's that, like olfactory? Yeah, your pheromones too. Your pheromones mm-hmm. and your olfactory. So you, you'll select a mate that's actually not 
biocompatible. Yeah. And then I've heard you talk about using DIM yes. uh, too. Yeah, which DIM I'm is a what fan I take of. for my skin. You use DIM? I do, yeah. I recommend men use it too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's an estrogen regulator. So um, if you have hormonal acne, which many, many women, most women do is the reason we get acne is because our hormones are not balanced. That's one of my favorites. I went from literally taking Accutane, which no one- Oh my God. <laughs> ever You're been. like on the gnarliest stuff. <laughs> like so gnarly. Accutane is so bad for your brain. So bad for you. Oh my God. So wow. bad for you. And never should have been taking it when I was diagnosed with any, like as bipolar or any kind of depression, anxiety or on any medications. But right. yeah. Literally went from taking minocycline and Accutane and all that stuff to I take four dim capsules every day and right. my skin is perfect and acne free and like I don't have to worry ever. I know it's crazy. A lot of people think when you have acne or skin problems that it's like because your pores are dirty and like you have, you know what I no. mean? Like you just need to wash your face more. My, my younger brother had acne, he was a teenager and I was already into health and stuff. I'm like, dude. Yeah. It's not, you don't need alcohol wipes on your face. It's your hormones and your diet. It's yeah. driving me nuts. Yeah. You know? Well, that's why you probably look so young is because you take dim. I really feel like it like helps you not You know, age. it's funny. <laughs> I forgot about the um, the estrogen balance thing with the dim. I started taking it just to assist in detox. Mm. And so it was, it was part of my detox protocol. But yeah, because mm -hmm. oftentimes, you know, guys, even if you have enough testosterone, it'll convert into estrogen and the mm -hmm. dim helps preventing that from happening. So you have more free testosterone that you yeah. can use to be manly and badass. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So that's really good. So you're finding the herbs. And then yes. uh, at what point do you then turn that into your blog? And mm. then that manifests into your first book, Cured by Nature. Yeah. So when I moved, I moved out to California in October, 2011. Um, and I'd already, so I had a blog from when I was 14 on Live Journal. I don't know if you remember Live Journal. No, Anybody don't. remembers Live Journal? <laughs> but so I, you were an early adopter. I was though. an early adopter, an early yeah. blogger from back in the day. Day, um, yeah, my first blog was in 2000, before the like right before the World Trade Center. Like I had a blog when like the Twin Towers went down. Wow, like, I, like, that's that was crazy. Back in the I day, think day. I barely had the internet. <laughs> like, I had my little Dell computer, you know, at that point. Wow. But I had the same blog like since then and I just wanted a fresh start. So I started a WordPress site, a WordPress blog um, and I called it My Organic Life at the time. And I just started blogging about like moving out to California and my road trip and all the new places I was visiting and these like raw vegan eats and just more about my journey. And then I started sharing more about the alternatives that I was using and my health journey and the fact that I'd come off of my drugs, which I didn't tell my family for a year. Oh, really? But they so, also weren't reading my blog. So I was, I was like right. sharing it. But then I didn't, I didn't tell them for a while because I just didn't want them to feel like they'd done something wrong. You know, right. it wasn't really about like keeping it from them. It was oh, okay. more about like healing me. So <laughs> if, they, if they would have been like, you know, felt guilt about feeling responsible for encouraging that solution or something? Correct. Oh, okay, And right. they probably would have discouraged me from doing it. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, there's that. Yeah, when you want to get off meds too, by the way, like your doctor's probably not going to agree with that because uh -uh. they don't have, you know, they're not trained to have a solution like, oh, really? You want to get off meds? Cool. Well, let's teach you to meditate. Right? You know no, I mean? they like, don't have a solution. Yeah. 
And depending on what you're diagnosed with, they may call it a symptom of your illness. Oh, God. So when you're bipolar or schizophrenic, right. when you want to come off your meds, they're like, oh, now she's really bad. Now we got to put her on more meds. Oh, my God. That's so scary. It's a catch-22. Yeah, so it gnarly. truly is. So the second you right. get diagnosed and put on meds, you're fucked. If you have those two diagnoses, because they will never let you come off. It's a lifetime thing. They tell you it's a lifetime thing and you have to go, yep, I'm totally cool with taking pills for the rest of my life, even though I'm 13. Wow. So, yep. Wow. So you yep. get out to California, you're working on your blog mm-hmm. and then how does that start to take off? Because now, I mean, those listening that are are already familiar with your work know that you're this you know, this juggernaut of content and social media and popularity and things like that. Uh, But for people that don't, I mean, you have what, like half a million Instagram followers. Like I'm sure your site has insane traffic. You're now putting out your second book. So how did this turn into the ability to help multitudes of people and your, you know, desire? You said, I want to be famous and heal the world or (laughs) whatever. Like that's actually happening. So what's the, what's the road been like for that? Um, It started pretty slowly, but I would say slowly, but more rapidly than I thought. So I wasn't doing it. I didn't even have a way to track how many visitors I was getting. It wasn't until I started getting emails and I was like, let me put a site tracker on this and see who's visiting. Cause it's like getting like 20 emails a day. So I must be at least getting like 20 visitors. Right. And then I'd look and I'd be like, whoa, there's like 300 people, you know, in the beginning you're like, well, who are these people? You know, cause at first you're, it's like the people, you know, and then it's like, people from Dubai. And then it's like people from Singapore and then it's people from Utah. And you're like, what, how are you, what, (laughs) how are you finding me? Like, what is going on? And I would just get these emails from people that were like, thank you so much for that suggestion. Like it cured my psoriasis. Thank you for this. Like I use this toothpaste now. It's amazing. I use this lipstick and it's just as good as Mac and it doesn't have all these toxic ingredients. Like you're amazing. Thank you so much. And then I started sharing my story of coming off my drugs. And I started getting these emails from people going like, oh my God, I've been thinking about coming off my drugs forever. And thank you for sharing this because I was thinking about doing a cold turkey. And now I know like the resources to do it um, in a healthy, productive way. And after that, my publishing company like just sent me an email and was like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, yes, (laughs) every single day since I was like four years old. (laughs) So it was just this incredible thing that like it went from helping like a few people to helping like dozens to helping hundreds to thousands to my publishing company. Just, I mean, I asked how they found me months later and like, Oh, we just Googled like popular health bloggers. And your blog was the first thing that came up. Wow. I was like, very fortuitous. And then we saw your story and we figured like the same thing. Um, there's a few that we were talking about before and like two more doctors like Kelly Brogan and like two more doctors, um, have written about, you know, being doctors who help their patients more natural route or having gone through it themselves a little bit, antidepressants and coming off antidepressants and going through a more natural route. But they just, when we first talked on the phone, they were like, nobody has written a book about this. Like no one's written a book about being on this many drugs and coming off them cold turkey. And like then finding the alternatives to the drugs that they were on and then those actually working for them personally. Like you have to write about this because... It's a cool niche. Yeah. I mean, specifically (laughs) like that piece of the puzzle, like, cool, here's this drug that, you know, is derived at some point from these compounds and then finding the actual compounds and implementing those into a lifestyle and becoming your own doctor. I mean, that's a really compelling idea. I can see why the publishers were like, hmm, we got to get this out. (laughs) Well, plus I have a science background. So it's not all just like out of my ass. Like I'm a biologist. My last nine to five job was 
analyzing asbestos samples. The one before that, it was I worked in a fertility clinic. Like I know my bio pretty oh, well. So you're just not like a dingy, like green juice yoga girl. <laughs> no. <laughs> and no offense to dingy, you know, I love no you. Offense. I love my green juice girls, you know, but yeah, you're, you're, no, I have you're, a you're you have a nerdy brainiac side Huge too. nerdy brainiac side. I yeah. majored in genetics, epigenetics at that, environmental genetics. Wow. So like I niche majored in genetics, which is right. like, you don't even have to do that. I don't even know why I did that. Yeah. I, so I'm just like a huge nerd. And for me, it was about... So my books are very nerdy in that, but they're also compelling in that I combine the storytelling of what I've been through with with why the drugs really didn't work. Like I go through talking about how like GABA, which is such an essential neurotransmitter for us, lithium, the drug I was on for so long is a GABA inhibitor. It inhibits your GABA from working throughout your body. Like, so how is that helping your mood when GABA is the only thing you need for mood stabilization? So those are the things that I get to explore (laughs) in my books as a dork and share with other people that can maybe bring it more home scientifically of why what I'm saying makes sense. Yeah. Well, your books are also very accessible though. I mean, you know, because you have a, an education and you kind of understand how it works, but I think you're really good at translating the information into something that a regular person can understand, which Thank is something you. I really like doing. I mean, that's the purpose yeah. of my podcast is to take experts in these different fields and kind of you don't need a lot of translation because you already know how to do it yourself. But sometimes I interview someone who's just so scientific that it's like, I know the listeners probably have a really hard time understanding. So they'll say something. I'm like, so what you're saying is, and I kind of like, I don't want to say dumb it down, but just make it relatable and accessible. And right. sometimes do that with really esoteric, really far out woo woo spiritual teachers. And I'm like, so what you're saying is, yeah. and I think you have a unique ability to do that too. It's one of your superpowers is to, oh, you know, you. take take these um, these ideas and frame them in a way that's very common sense. Mm. You know, I think that's something that most people, especially people that are desperate, respond to is like, well, you know what? I have all these preconceived ideas and I've been taught all of these erroneous beliefs, but this just makes sense. And when you get back to nature, mm. you know, nature is the ultimate common sense. It's just, yeah, like, you know, we're under these blue lights right now. And, you know, that's not nature. Uh-uh. You look at the, <laughs> like, you look at that and you're like, oh, that hurts my eyes. And then you look outside and you're yeah. like, oh, that feels good Can to look at the tree. Out there? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Dude, I recorded a podcast a couple of days ago as a guest in Joshua Tree National Park. Oh, no. Yeah, I brought these mics. Yeah, oh, yes. my friend Sabrina. And, uh, we were going to record. She's. Putting... I know Sabrina. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do a podcast she, with her. I think she yeah. said to, uh-huh. um, to say hi to you yeah, now yeah. that I think about it. She might even <laughs> hi, be watching. <laughs> hey, Sabrina, if you're watching. But yeah, um, she, you know, we wanted to record an episode and I guess normally she would have done it in her house. I was like, can we go out in the desert and do it? And we went out there and it was amazing. And I yes. realized that these little windscreens on these mics, they work because it was windy as hell. Yes. You would have heard like... Yeah. <laughs> And we did it and I th- I've got to get the you know confirmation from her, but I think it turned out really clean. And I'm like, shit, I'm gonna, if, if when I move to Topanga or wherever uh-huh. I end up, I'm like, dude, I'm going to have like an outdoor studio. Yeah, definitely. That would be epic, yeah, right? That should be something you look for when you're looking for it. Just put it out yeah, there. You know? Thank you. I'm going to do that. I'm yeah. going to do that. So mm-hmm. tell us, um, as, as we come to a close here, tell us about your new book, Wild Habits. Yeah, what do you want to know? <laughs> I just like what is the wild habit method, you okay. know, of living? So I call it the wild method. And it's a way to recognize really how we can 
So I, I honestly believe that the way to change is not to bombard yourself with more choices. It's to harness the choices that we're already making, the, the food we're eating, the people we're talking to, the things we're having in our life, what we're doing, how much we're exercising. Um, and the WILD method, which is in WILD habits, is really the way to do it. So WILD is an acronym that stands for willingness, intuition, love, and discipline. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was, you know, I didn't have time to read the whole thing, but yeah. I was looking through there and you have some very powerful principles, you know, and the willingness is the one that stood out to me because it's just one that I'm, you know, acutely aware of in my own life. Yeah. Well, I feel like people who have gone through AA or Alateen or Al-Anon or whatever, like that whole program that you, they always tell you like, until you have, until you recognize it within yourself, like nothing's going to change. And that's what I feel like the willingness really is, is just the willingness to recognize I need to change something. Because if you don't take that first step, like what's going to change? Nothing's going to change. So you need the willingness to recognize that something has to change. You need the intuition to figure out what that thing is and what change needs to happen. And then you need the love to actually implement those changes. And then you need the discipline to do that over and over and over again until it actually sticks as a new habit. So that's the wild method. And I've used it with, I mean, hundreds of clients and friends and family and um, people over the years. And it's really helped. I use many examples in the book of people who've used it not not just to like become a better mother or eat better or live a healthier lifestyle, but people who've used it to overcome trauma and abuse and really some of the worst things like, you know, the death of their parents and some of the worst things that can really happen to us and impact us, you know, and be the hardest things to get over of like, okay, where do I start? Come back to the method. And every single time it, it really works for people. It really, really works. I know it's worked for me time and time again. And the more people and the more circumstances I see it affecting, the happier I am with the results. Cause I just feel like if you do all four steps and you just do them over and over again, like you really can't go wrong if you're being honest with yourself. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I can't wait to dig into yeah, it more. Yeah, I know. You're going to love it. I showed you I have like this stack of books from all of my podcast guests. I have I have them all in a drawer so they don't get mixed up with yeah. my other books. I'm, <laughs> I'm like the guy who never finishes a book, but I, I start them all the time. So I have like different piles of books that are on different topics and from different people. And so this is going to go in my stack and I'm going to start working on... You're going to start reading on, it and never finish No, no, I will. I'll, I get through them eventually, yeah. but I just don't like start one and then finish it and move on to the next. I start one and then like maybe a quarter of the way through, I add a couple more and then I rotate between them. Same with audiobooks. Yeah. Like I'll always have like five audiobooks that are, you know, at varying degrees of... um, of uh, of progress, yeah. Nice. Um, So what do I want to ask you last? What's one thing personally that you're you're struggling to overcome in your own life right now because you've overcome so much like what's you know what's a sticking point that you have in terms of your personality and just you know the psychology of you so i think we were just you know talking about how i'm going through a pretty big you know i have this book launch and i'm going through a pretty big personal life transition right now my relationship just ended my engagement just ended and i think for me i'm actually looking to like build my, like I literally, my house right now is basically just a manufacturing facility that I live in. Like I've spent seven years building my business and I've sacrificed a lot personally to do that. And 
I'm really trying to find out at this point, like who I am. I know that sounds like ridiculous, but there's little things like when I went to go furniture shopping today, I'm like, I don't know what kind of furniture I like. Like I haven't had to make these, like, and it's not that I haven't bought furniture. It's that I've just been like, okay, that's fine. Whatever. Like I got to get back to work. You know, I haven't really put in the time to figure out like what is a personal reflection of myself in my own home. And that's definitely had like effects in other areas of my life. So now that the home is mine and I'm kind of entering life in this new phase. It's exciting. It's also like a little weird. I was having like a little bit of a hard time with it yesterday because I'm like, I've worked so hard. And then to live in this house and look around and not have one single thing that really feels like a reflection of me or who I am is like kind of sad, you know, because I spent so much time like working and getting to this place where I want a beautiful home and I want to be happy and I want to, you know, and I have that, but I don't have the things like in it. And it's very hard for me as somebody who grew up poor to like justify like, oh, I'm going to spend $600 on a table. Like, like you really have to get me to spend (laughs) money on stuff. That's not like food or books. Like I'll go out. I literally went out antiquing to go buy like chairs and tables for my place. And I came home with six books. Like it's bad. It's so bad. That's good. That's good. I've been reading, reading and also listening to, because I love it so much, this book um, called You're a Badass at Making Money. I need to get that one. Yeah. Really, really, it's really good. I mean, it's concepts I'm sure you're familiar with and I'm familiar with just poverty thinking and like all that stuff. But she just has a great sense of humor and a way of framing it that just, I don't know, it just really hits home. And I was listening to it on the way back from Joshua Tree yesterday. And she talks about like really finding that limiting belief that you have and finding the root of where it came from, like what your issue is with money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, many of us have issues and I was looking back at it and I fucking found mine in the car. I was like, oh my God, that's what it is. And it, you know, it has to do with just beliefs that were mm, imposed on me kind of about that people with money are assholes and specifically men with mm-hmm. money are assholes. Yeah. And uh, and I was like, wow, I really have that kind of thing in there, a similar sort of thing where yeah. you're like, oh, I don't deserve nice things or need yeah. to put my money here, put my money I gotta there. I got to put it back into my business. Why yeah. would I buy a table when I could buy ingredients? You know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it's just, it's very hard yeah. for me personally to justify buying things. Yeah. But that's definitely something I'm working on. I've recognized it's a scarcity mentality from growing up on food stamps and social yeah. services and not, I never went furniture shopping with anyone in my family. We didn't buy new stuff Ever. Like the couches in my grandparents' living room have been there since the 70s. <laughs> okay. Like right. they've been reupholstered, but that's about it. Like right. we don't buy new shit. Like that's just not really where I come from. My whole family like grew up with nothing. I'm the first person in my family to like make as much money as I do. And that's also a new thing for me too. And while it feels amazing to be successful, like I'm still overcoming these beliefs about scarcity and money. And like, I'm a money hoarder, which like part of it is just because like, you know, same thing. Like, I don't want it to go anywhere. (laughs) Like, I don't want to wake up one day and not have it. No, it's Um, funny. I'm always like jealous of people that have the money hoarding thing because mm. I've always had the burn a hole in my pocket thing. <laughs> like I'm pretty good at making money, but historically yeah. I've always been better at spending it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you'd make a little graph and you show the income and the spending and one's higher than the other, you got a fucking problem and it's yeah. called debt. You yes. know? And so I've struggled with that a lot in my life of just, you know, 
changing the way that I think about it in that respect. And like, hey, it wouldn't kill you to like have a few grand in the bank. Like you literally don't have to spend every dollar that comes in. So yeah, I, I had that one for a while. Really? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. When I, when I first started making money and I was young and you feel like it's not gonna, especially when it's coming from someone else. Like I feel like as somebody who built my own business now, like every penny is important. And while I'm not like a miser and I treat myself to very nice things, it's always food and experiences. It's always like travel and food and things with my friends. And like, you know, it's, I don't put gas in my car because I have an electric car, but (laughs) just in theory, you know, things like that. Like I'm willing to put money towards more than a lamp or whatever. Like it's just, it's very hard for me. And I don't get a lot of satisfaction out of like shit, out of like stuff. You know what I mean? I don't get any satisfaction out of buying stuff. So somebody really literally has to like lead me (laughs) and be like, you're buying this. You like it. You're buying it. Like get it, treat yourself to it, whatever. I know what your cure is on the superficial, not like on the, on the psychological part of it, but Mm -hmm. working with an interior designer cures that. Because so, so insane. You just mentioned that. So my assistant, my new assistant, her passion is interior design. And she just started working for me like this month. And we are working oh. through it. That's why I'm telling like I'm working yeah. through it with her. And she said the same thing to me on the way here. Really? Like on the way here. She literally was like, this That's is cool. why I'm in your life. Interior design is my passion. If you really feel that uncomfortable buying stuff, let me just buy it for you. And like, whatever, you know what I mean? Well, that's the thing when you work with an interior designer and I haven't done it extensively, but in a couple spots I have. In mm-hmm. my last house, I had this, Fantastic house. I mean, your house is so nice. Like this is thank you. Goals. Thank you. <laughs> you can just sell me all your stuff, and I'll be happy. Well, there we could talk. <laughs> we'll um, talk. But no, I, I lived in this very unique, like mid-century modern house, and it just—it was not a house you just throw some IKEA shit in. Like right. it really is a very specific style. And so I had an interior designer come over and just do like an initial consultation to just give me some ideas. But had I continued with her services and like went whole hog, it involves like making mood boards and gathering together reference pictures and things like that. And they go out and find you stuff and you give them a budget like, cool, okay, I want to spend 10 grand. And then there's that budget for the the home goods. And then there's Mm -hmm. the budget for their fee. And like, you're hiring them to go spend your money. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not going to come back going, sorry, I could only spend three of your yeah. 10 grand. Like, no, no, their job is to spend that 10 grand. And they go that, spend it all. <laughs> and that model, I think I identified and thought about for you because when I was a fashion stylist, it's like, it's sometimes I would dress people that didn't like spending money on clothes, but like the record label or the movie studio, or whatever, would give them a budget and I had to spend the money, you mm-hmm. know? I wasn't going to come back under budget because right. then next time I get hired by them or someone else gets hired, then they're going to shrink the budget and go, well, the last guy only needed X amount of dollars. So um, I was pretty good at spending other people's money. You know, it's <laughs> kind bet. of fun. <laughs> and I would make them spend money on things that were beautiful too. I yeah. mean, that made them feel really good. You yeah. know, sometimes material things can actually make you happy. You It'll know? make me happy when it's all in my house and my house right. makes sense and like my dish towels match my, you know, plates <laughs> right, and stuff. Right, like totally. that'll make me happy. But the process yeah. of going out and figuring out what my style is. And I also think a part of me is resisting because when your relationship ends and you have to figure out like who you are again, like that's just a part I've realized I've just ignored for a really long time. And yeah. it's weird, especially right before a book launch to be like, all right, this is the time I'm going to delve into who I am and what kind of decor I like and right. what, you know, like what I want my bathroom towels to look like. Like it's like a weird time for me to be taking this on, but it's also, I feel like, you know, there's no good time to like. On that note, I want to ask you in, uh, in, in closing and then I'll stop because I keep thinking of other questions. 
This is going to be an interview, like three not, parts. <laughs> well, no, I, you know what? I'm actually, I, I did a poll in my Lifestylist uh, Facebook group, by uh-huh. the way, if you're listening, if you'd like to be a part of the Facebook group, you can help form the format of the show because I did, mm-hmm. I saw in the in the group, you can take a little poll, you know, oh, and people can it. vote. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I'm always torn between having like one long two or three hour episode or breaking it into two parts. And I always used to break it up. Because then I'd get, I mean, frankly, I'd get double downloads that way, which is kind of smart. Yeah, and you I could think like, that's why people do it. <laughs> you could get more advertising, you know, spots in and stuff like that. So there's a little bit of business strategy, but also just I'm like, who has three hours to sit there? But I did a poll and it was like 90% of the people in there, and there was about a thousand people in there at that point, And 90% of them were like, give it to us all on Tuesdays, the whole thing. So oh, nice. I'm like, God, that makes me and the editor's job a lot easier. So no, it'll just go. be one. But um, yeah. But I, I was, um, I have a sort of a chiropractic, a network spinal analysis appointment that I'm supposed to be at. <laughs> but I'm having fun, so I don't want to stop. Yeah, I'm already late. They might have already canceled. <laughs> uh, but I want to ask you, and I just, I could, I'd be pissed at myself if I didn't cover this. Just, sure. you seem to be really badass at business and marketing and stuff. I mean, your social following and your whole thing, like you're crushing it. How did you learn about? this model of like list building and even just looking at your book launch because I'm always looking at sort of my peers, mm-hmm. you being one of them. And I'm looking at your Wild Habits book um, on Amazon. Like if through your Instagram link, you go to the Amazon like pre-sale thing and you have all these bonuses and opt-ins. And I'm like, how's she thinking of all this <laughs> shit, man? It's like, it's a lot of work to put all that stuff together and yeah. then implement it. And I just, I know I own, you know, my fashion school, school of style. I mean, my partner, Lauren, is mostly on the strategy of all that and also much of the execution, to be totally honest. So I'm like, how did you learn all this shit? You're 31 and you're like a beast of an entrepreneur. Oh, thank you. Well, I think a lot of it is... um like I said, I, so I started doing like journaling, online journaling, blogging, like when I was 14. So my life was take a bunch of pictures, edit them, put a caption underneath and put a blog post up, which just now happens to be how the world works. So I got really good at editing photos and and kind of matching captions to pictures and and curating things like that at a very, very young age, like way before it was a thing. So I think that really helped. And then Lori Grenier talks about how there's like, there's different part, there's different people are like different, good at different things when it comes to marketing. And some people are like marketing mavens, which I really kind of feel like I fit into that category more of just like, I can see whatever the project is and immediately figure out how to kind of get it to the people, um, the people that need to see it. So my market, even though I have half a million Instagram followers is more niche than a lot of other people's because it doesn't focus on like food. It's mostly self-improvement, coming off your drugs, improving your habits, right. things that people who really want to put in the work are going to be interested in more so than, oh, I want to look at like a cute smoothie recipe or whatever, which there's some of that too, right. but it's more like diving in really deep for the work. So I just, I feel like I've just found ways to make that engaging for people. I do what I would want to see and what would engage me. And that just seems to really work. And then I really try to build personal relationships with people through my Instagram, through my newsletter, through my blog. Like I love hearing when people get my newsletters that like it brightened their day or they were super inspired or they started a company or wrote a book because I have books or started a company like and kind of gave them the tools of how to do it. I think that is amazing. That's like the most rewarding part of all. For me, it's, I don't get anything out of like making money at it or what I get out of it, what I get back from people. Like that's what I really get out of it is people who were like, if you can do it, I sure as hell can do it. (laughs) So, and that used to kind of like make me like a little tiffed, but now I'm like, hell yeah. Like if you want to use my shitty life 
story example to like motivate <laughs> right. yourself, right. go for it. Right. <laughs> because at least that gives you another reason why I know that that happened. And, um, and I really, for me, it's about providing value to people. Like I don't just put out like a pretty picture with like two emojis and like a little quote from someone else. Every quote is from me. Every, you know, I try not to re share, like I'll reshare memes on like my um, stories and stuff, but I don't, I don't like to post anything that's not like from the heart or from me. And I just feel like it's a way to let people know who I am and people who don't have the time to read the books or listen to every podcast or read every blog post, they get little snippets of, of the message. And that's more important to me than selling books or products or anything. And I feel like as long as you keep it genuine and you keep sharing value, like anybody can do it. It's the, we're in living in a beautiful time right now where literally anyone can do it and it's free. Aside from the perspective that you have inside of like the general strategy, um, I guess the intention behind it more and like the why is more what you just described. How have you learned and how do you continue to learn the actual mechanics of the strategy? Oh. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Like, so I read a lot of books. Like getting up to <laughs> 500,000 Instagram followers. Like, yeah. how does that happen? That doesn't just happen from like, oh, well, I, you know, I have a great intention and I want to help people. And, you know, and honestly, that. it does. Okay, okay, <laughs> Part, okay. Partially, but you're right. No, I mean, I read a lot of books about marketing and I've read, you know, and I immerse myself in these conferences and I'm friends with a lot of people who are in the field and we share tips with each other. And like, I'm, you know, Facebook in Facebook groups where people give advice. And I feel like it's, it really is just about learning. I've Googled a lot of it too. Like you can basically learn anything on Google, school of Google. Like I've learned a lot and I've learned a lot about my business and running and forming my own business just from Googling stuff. You know, I don't know how I would have known half of what I know unless, you know, I had a search engine to ask. Have you ever worked with uh, like a business coach too to help you with email I've marketing? I've never worked and all with a business kind of coach. I've never even taken a business class. <laughs> wow. So, wow. Yeah. I'm um, self-taught. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. That's that's really great. Yeah. yeah. I love I love where we are right now Isn't in beautiful? in the world, and especially for guys like me. I mean, I just kind of reinvented myself at 45 years old. I know. You know I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this other thing now. Yeah. And well, now, I love that guys like you were just like popping up. And I'm like, because that's why I want to know your story. Because I felt I've been in this the wellness world for like seven years now. And I'm like, where did you come from? Yeah. I just like came out of <laughs> like, nowhere. You know, like, I was like, hey. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember you yeah. being here five years ago. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but well, I'm so happy. Like, I'm really happy that you're here. And we thanks. just get, I feel like we get more and more people every day. And I'm like, hell yeah. yeah. You know, people who are using their stories to make the world a better place. Well, that's awesome. I mean, it's like each one of us also, you know, every teacher, and I'm just going to call us teachers, every teacher has their student and every student has their teacher, you know, and I'm sure as you've read your different spiritual books and things that you study, it's like something resonates you with a little while and that takes you to this next level and you may or may not stay with that teacher or teaching, but you move on to another one and then that resonates. So it's like each one of us has you know, hordes of people that could benefit from our experience and the things that we've gone through and been able to overcome. And then we're also following the next one and the next one and kind of following their lead. And it's just, it's a really cool time in history right now to be able to, I think much more easily through social media to do what you love and you're passionate about and actually make a lot of money from doing it too. 
Like I love, and everybody always so asks rad. me, like, how do you make so much money doing you do? I said, I did all of it for free. Like yeah. people were not paying people to do what I do five years ago. I literally had to email brands and tell them why my 15 years of modeling experience, plus my education, plus my blog viewership equals like a better deal for them than doing their own campaign and hiring a photographer and different models and stuff. Like I had right. to explain that to brands when I first started because right. we were inventing this. Like yeah. nobody was doing this. So I feel like it's like a, it's become a beautiful way to have a business and be able to authentically share yourself and things that helped you. Like how amazing <laughs> is it that I get paid to like right. tell people how I saved my life? Like that's incredible. Yeah. And the more people that I meet who are doing it like you and the more people that, like our friend Sahara, who like came to my book launch two years ago and was like, I'm writing my first book. And then I went on her podcast and then her book, and then she's her own phenomenon. And it's like, it's just incredible to watch these people take like their stories and their inspirations from other people and then become part of the community and then lead the community. Like, I just think it's such a beautiful thing to yeah, watch. It is. You know? It's cool. It's really cool. It's, it's neat too, that in the corporate world, they're starting to see the value and the power of like advertising ROI on mm. people like us that are quote unquote influencers. Yeah. You know, it's like you, I have these corporations, some of them smaller, some of them bigger that do ads on my show mm -hmm. and they freaking love me because my ads convert yeah. more so than traditional advertising yeah. because my shit is real. And people listen to it. Yeah, and I'm not, <laughs> I, I just literally, like I wouldn't even think about promoting something that I don't think is dope or that I don't personally use or believe in or something like yeah. that, you know? It's yeah. like, I would never even, I mean, it just wouldn't even cross my mind if someone's like, hey, I got this really whack fake product that's really bad for you and it's got, you know, inferior ingredients and mold in it. Mm -hmm. I'll give you X amount of dollars to talk about it on your show. I'd be like, hell no. There's no way to even think about that. And so the reason that my ads convert and your posts and everything mm -hmm. that you're doing convert is because we're real people doing real shit and we're sharing it. Yeah. And it's just, it's so fun to be able to do that and feel just for me to have a sense of integrity about what I'm doing too yeah. and get over the idea that there's something wrong with, you know, making money, promoting really rad companies to people that are going to help them in, in a multitude of ways. It's really, really cool. I even think it's better than the traditional advertising where they, you know, because I modeled for 15 years and it was like, you know, I did this. They hire models to go pretend they use the product. They take pictures or videos, whatever. They film a commercial and then they sell it to you as these people use the product and they normally don't. So when you yeah. actually do this kind of advertising where you're using influencers who use and love your product to talk about your product and they really use and really love it, like that's the best kind of advertising there is. It doesn't get much better than that. That's what they were hoping yeah. for with the commercials for the last hundred years. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that's why they hire actors to yeah. pretend like they use that <laughs> exactly. shit. The actors literally are hired to trick you. Yes. Yeah. Like, yep. and, and the thing is, I think we're becoming more aware of when we're being lied to. Oh yeah. You know, the human intuition is asleep and wacky as we humans are. Yeah. I think we're getting eventually more, more in tune with, with realness and authenticity. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know. I could watch a car commercial and like, I know that guy's lying. That guy's not yeah. driving that car. It's not a real person. It's fake. Yeah. <laughs> the whole you thing know? is fake. Yeah. But if there's like an influencer <laughs> that I follow on Insta or something, they're like, dude, oh my God, I got the new Audi. This shit is dope. Da, yeah. da, da. I don't care if they're getting paid to tell me that. Right. As long as I know that they really like that car. Yeah, or they've or the had the car for five years already. And then finally, Audi, you know, yeah. they reached out to them. It's like, like I drive a Volt and I'll like, I don't get paid by Volt, but I tell people all the time. I'm like, I wish Volt paid me because I've probably right. convinced like 25 people to buy Volt. You probably 
probably could it. get them to pay. I probably we could. look into that. So yeah, it's cool. So I'm, <laughs> I support your, you know, your new the new model of revenue and creating content and supporting brands and supporting people that follow your content and stuff. Yeah. So good on you. I'm super happy for you. Thanks, uh, you I think too. that's all I've got. The last question I'm going to ask you is my full time question, and that is, who have been three teachers? or teachings that have influenced you in your work that our audience might be able to go look up and learn from as well? Yogananda, for sure. I would read Autobiography of a Yogi. I would read Journey to Self-Realization um, and watch the documentary on Yogananda on Netflix. I did that. Yeah. I've tried to read the book and I have never been able to oh. get through it. <laughs> I know it's me. like the seminal <laughs> spiritual journey. I mean, Autobiography of a Yogi, I've probably started like five times and I was like... <sighs> Yeah. I nod off and I'm like, you're supposed to like this, Luke. Come on. You're into spirituality. <laughs> Especially but in the it, beginning. But the documentary was dope though. Yeah, it yeah. definitely was. Um, I mentioned The Alchemist before, Paulo Coelho. He's written like a bunch of beautiful, beautiful books just about basically connecting back to who you truly are, which I think is beautiful. And they're really easy reads too. And he just like has written dozens of them. So if you don't want to read The Alchemist or something else speaks to you, go for it. And um, Lucille Ball... Whoa, curveball. <laughs> curveball. Curveball, Lucille Ball. <laughs> curveball, Lucille Ball. Um, she is like one of my greatest mentors like of all time. Of course, she died when I was like five, but all these people died. Or, well, actually, Paula's still alive, but um, most of my mentors are dead. But um, Lucille is amazing because she started her business from scratch. She was the first woman ever to own a television company. Really? She was in Hollywood. She didn't get her first big break. She The first episode of I Love Lucy did not air until she was 40 years old. She shaved her eyebrows off. She used to dance alongside Ginger Rogers. She was like in a bunch of B movies. Like she did not get her break for a really long time. <laughs> wow. And then she ended up just dominating the television empire and took over everything with her and her husband and just lived a very long, happy life and had a bunch of kids and That's more TV shows. And crazy. Yeah. I have never heard anything about her. Yeah. And her, you should read her autobiography, Love Lucy, which is just like so amazing. I read it for inspiration all the time. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. God, I never would have guessed that one. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> so where can we find you on websites, social media, books, sure. all that kind of stuff? Yeah. You can Google Wild Habits um, and that will come up, wildhabitsbook.com. Theorganiclifeblog.com is my blog. And then if you just Google my name, all of my social media will come up. I am Tara A. Mackey on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me thank today. Thank you so much for having me today. Glad we finally today. got it done. I'm glad you're able to take the train up to LA. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a train from San Diego to LA. But Pacific Surfliner. Sounds woo-woo. pretty dope. It's Com- beautiful. You just sit on the train for two hours and watch the ocean go by That's and then you're in so, LA. And then what do you do? Like Uber from the train station to your destination? I Ubered here, yeah. Wow. The God, Uber that's driver dope. was super nice. Where does the train station end coming from Union Station. Oh, downtown LA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Alameda. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, how um, post-millennial of you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you again for joining and I look forward to seeing what you're up to next. I know, I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. Yep. Can't wait to hear it. Uh, So that was a badass conversation, right? Like realness level 1000. So fun to sit down with people like I do and be able to just go deep. She went toe to toe with me and I love Tara for that. I love people that can keep it real. And I know that you guys do too, because I get more and more feedback about these kind of personal development and uh, human saga type episodes where people just get really intimate and get real. I find that it's so... I don't know, fascinating that we're in a place now with social media and people like me and so many other content creators where we have the opportunity to put out 
unedited material. You know, there's no one telling me what to talk about and not to talk about on my show. It's one of the last vestiges of free speech here versus the other opportunities you have for content on mainstream media, which is, of course, largely controlled by various groups for various reasons. But here we are indie, baby. We can say and do whatever we want. And of course, the goal is evolution for ourselves and uh, and betterment of our relationships and ultimately our communities and society as a whole. So thank you so much for joining me on another episode, another dive into the rabbit hole known as as uh, the Lifestylist Podcast. Yeah. All right. So what else do I want to say? I'm getting all nostalgic already and the interview just ended. We got business to take care of. No, for real though, I keep forgetting to plug my online store and I don't know what's up with this, you guys, but I've gone to great lengths for the past 20 years to find and resource the best supplements, the best biohacking technologies, the best gadgets that improve your life. And uh, I actually created a store on my site and I just kind of forget. I always just keep adding stuff in there and I don't tell anyone about it. And I know that I don't do it because I always get messages on social media like, hey, Luke, what's the best probiotic? What's the best bodywork device? What's the best sauna? The best this, the best that. And of course, you know, there is no uh, best objectively, only subjectively, but I'm, I'm pretty good at finding the good stuff. And when I find something better, I move on and, you know, skip that one and start promoting what I think is the raddest of everything. So if you go to the following URL, lukestory.com forward slash store, you will find my master market. And this is just a place where I provide all of the links for everything that I use or have used in my personal life to improve my health. So I don't have like a warehouse of stuff. I actually don't sell anything. I just have relationships with a number of brands and I help promote them. And it's a really cool thing for you to do to support the show. You know, if you're unable to give a donation or you don't make a purchase with one of the show's sponsors, which of course is another great way to support the show because they keep running ads on the show, which keeps the doors open here at the Lifestylist Podcast. But if you're someone who buys supplements and you're into your health and biohacking and you're going to buy them anyway, you might as well go through the portal on my site and use those links because it not only helps support the show, helps the raddest, most integrous brands in the world, But in many cases, I often give you a discount code on my site that's only available through my site. So if you go to lukestory.com forward slash store, like do it when you hang up from this, when you hang up, like we're on a call. I feel like I'm on a phone call with you. No, but seriously, when you close the podcast app, I guess that's the right way to say it. Go to lukestory.com forward slash store and just bookmark that. And rather than going on Amazon or going, you know, through the internet and Googling stuff, try to find the best probiotic or whatever you're going to find, you can kind of just let me do the work for you. Uh, Chances are I've probably found the best, if not one of the best products or services out there. So check that out. All right. So uh, that's that plug. What I want to tell you next. All right. I said it at the intro, but in case you're asked, fast forwarded it, I'm going to tell you again, next week's episode, number 142. Listen, you do not want to miss this one. It's featuring Byron Katie one of my all-time favorite spiritual teachers. She's like on the level with Eckhart Tolle, dude. A lot of people say Tolle. He says Tolle. Tolle's a lot cooler to say than Tolle, but he calls himself Tolle, so I'm just going to say Eckhart Tolle. One of these days, I'll get him on the show, hopefully, but Byron Katie is just as awesome, and I've been into her work for 25 years. She created something called The Work, which is going to blow your goddamn mind. It's amazing. That's next week, number 142, Byron Katie. 
And then last, but certainly not least, because these guys make this show possible, let's give a warm hand and warm welcome to our sponsors. First up, we've got Athletic Greens. You can go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke. But here's what's up. Got a bonus for you. You can get 20 free travel packs valued at $99 with your first purchase. So basically, you're getting 100 bucks product for free. You know what I'm saying? So that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke. And then one of our newer sponsors and one of my favorites because I sleep with them every night. Yeah, that's how we do it here. I literally sleep with these guys every night. We got a thing going and that's Altera Pure, the best organic sheets on the damn planet. When I signed up with these guys to run ads on the show, I literally got on the phone with their CEO and I actually did that with Athletic Greens and Organifi. I'm kind of psycho. These brands probably find me really annoying because... I want to find out if they're um, good to the environment, if they're good for my audience's bodies, if they're good for local communities, if they're sustainable, uh, like every single ingredient used. I'm so hardcore when it comes to products that I put in my body or on my body. I guess the only thing I don't do that's, um, you know, I don't, that's not organic is like my clothes. I mean, my clothes are probably toxic because they have all kinds of weird dyes, but I'm not trying to sell you clothes. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to buy these sheets, man, because they're really comfortable. They're very well designed. They're super well made and they're just insanely well sourced and just as organic as humanly possible. They're even non-GMO cotton. They're just next level. So that's Altera Pure. And you want to go to alterapure.com and it gets better. Of course, you know, I'm going to hook you up. If you use the code lifestylist at alterapure.com, you will save 15% off your order. So what I have is the sheet set with the pillowcases, top sheet, fitted sheet, that whole deal. I actually I have a spare set too for like my blow up mattress if somebody stays over or when I used to do Airbnb before I got caught by my landlord and and busted for doing it and not able to do it anymore. But anyway, I have a spare set of sheets and then a really great duvet cover, even with like organic bamboo buttons. I mean, these guys are hardcore. So go to alterapure.com and use the code lifestylist to save 15%. And last but not least, one of my all-time favorites, and that is Organifi. And I literally two hours ago made an Organifi smoothie with their gold product, which is my current favorite. Now, every single morning, I either use Athletic Greens or the Organifi Green, or sometimes both, and a bunch of spirulina and chlorella. I make like the gnarliest, like super green smoothie kind of thing in the morning. But definitely at night, literally every night now, I'm on the Organifi Gold. I make some version of some kind of golden latte, turmeric type situation. This stuff is just delicious. It has no sugar. It's, of course, all organic. It's totally badass. So I'd love for you to pick some of that up. Your body's going to thank me. Your taste buds are going to thank me. And Organifi is going to keep helping to support the show. You know what I'm saying? So go to Organifi.com forward slash Luke. And that is spelled with an I. Organifi with an I forward slash Luke. Here's what's up. If you enter the code Lifestylist, you save 20%. So there you go. Those are the plugs. Those are our sponsors. Again, man, go to my store, lukestory.com forward slash store. Do some shopping there. Support our sponsors. And you will enable me not only to keep this thing going, 
but to make the show better and better. You know, I'm always working on the production quality, uh, the website, the social media. I'm always upping the ante when it comes to the music, the editing, the graphic design, all of that. I really want to make a high quality podcast. It's like a radio show, but unedited and real and not phony like a lot of radio shows are. So thank you so much for joining me. And if you can't do any of those things to support, if you're like, yo, I don't buy supplements, I don't care about that stuff. You know what you can do? Each time you get a newsletter from me with a podcast, you can forward that to one or two friends or you can post on Instagram or Facebook like, hey, this is an awesome podcast. Listen to it because here's what's up. Here's how it works. I'll give you a little inside baseball right now. As a podcaster, your advertising rates for the companies that advertise on your show, and I'm sorry, we got to do that because I spend like half my life running this podcast. It's it's super intense, as you can probably imagine. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And it's very expensive because I'm hiring about six people to help me run it. Uh, so how it works is the more downloads you have, the better you do with advertising, right? And how do you get more downloads? By lovely people like you sharing it with their friends. So if you can't do anything to support the show, you can definitely just turn some people onto it. You'll be helping me, the show, all of our sponsors, all of our guests, of course, who so graciously lend us their time. And more than anything, you'll be supporting the world by sharing great information that's gonna uplift us all. All right, so blessings, and Ja love to you until next week with Byron Katie. <laughs>